The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're delighted to speak to Brother Abdullah Rabbat. How are you, Akhi Abdullah? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing great. How are you? All good, Alhamdulillah. Brother Abdullah Rabbat is a student of Hadith whose interests primarily revolve around the application of Hadith theory and the assortment of data derived from Isnads. He also has an interest in studying Shi'ism and its origins and is formerly a student of the Hanbali school of fiqh. Abdullah has authored several works on Hadith and Shiism, and I have provided a link to, 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 to his works in the description box below. Abdullah's efforts are ongoing as he continues to work on several projects that will come to light in the future, inshallah. Today, Abdullah is going to give us a presentation about the famous companion and Hadith narrator, Abu Hurairah. He will shed light on his life, and hadith transmission and highlight different ways his role can be appreciated within Islamic history. Moreover, Abdullah will clarify some of the most popular misconceptions surrounding him. Abdullah, whenever you're ready, the floor is all yours. Sure. Uh, bismillah. <clears throat> all right. Uh, bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Uh, my interest in Abu Huraira started in around 2018. I started compiling his traditions, uh, namely his hadith in the Sahihain, Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim. And uh, my ultimate goal was to actually study him and uh, maybe publish some analysis of his uh, hadith corpus as a whole. And so I started that project. And then in, in around 2019, I had a lot of free time due to COVID. So I actually decided that uh, maybe a thorough biography of Abu Huraira needed to be compiled. And so I actually did that in private. I have the draft biography uh, in my position. I haven't published it yet. I would like to publish it in the future, inshallah. And um, every now and then, you know, uh, my interest in Abu Huraira keeps getting reignited and uh, I, go, I go back to my data and I build on it. And so uh, in this presentation today, inshallah, we're gonna uh, go over some of my observations uh, in Abu Huraira's hadith corpus. And uh, since Abu Huraira has been the subject of some attacks over the past few months, you know, inshallah, we can address some of those misconceptions and uh, uh, shed some insight on these issues. Fantastic. So what are we going to cover in the presentation today? Now, ideally, any defense of Abu Huraira and any exposition of his hadith transmission would include a thorough biography 
of Abu Huraira. Um, and that is for several reasons. Obviously, when you're talking about a historical figure and, uh, you know, something controversial in his life, you obviously would need a, a, a background on that figure and some context. But at the same time, there also is another issue uh, that warrants us to study his biography, which is that a lot of the misconceptions about Abu Huraira's hadith and a lot of the, the arguments brought against it actually stem from misconceptions of his life and his biography and some historical errors here and there. Um, and uh, we'll go over a few today, but there are many. So in this presentation today, uh, we're going to um, get into glimpses into the factors that led Abu Huraira to his role in Hadith. So we're trying to understand, you know, what are the human factors that uh, contributed to someone like Abu Huraira and other Sahaba as well that are similar to him to attain uh, their later status as prolific Hadith transmitters. Um, and then we're also going to go over uh, some qualitative indicators of Abu Huraira's reliability and his traditions. So these are certain things we observe him doing, uh, certain behaviors of his, certain practices we see in his own Hadith that uh, would attest to his reliability and his integrity. Uh, what we're also going to go through is an overview of his Hadith transmission. So that'll include some statistics and uh, other noteworthy trends and practices of Abu Huraira in transmission. And finally, we'll go, we'll <clears throat> evaluate some of the popular controversies and polemics against Abu Huraira's reliability. Um, most importantly, Umar ibn al-Khattab and Abu Huraira, the allegations of misogyny that have been brought against Abu Huraira, early Shia satire against Abu Huraira, uh, Abu Huraira and, and Ka'b al-Ahbar with respect to the Israeliyat. And uh, finally, uh, Abu Huraira and the Kufan jurists. So uh, before I delve into the specifics, I'm going to clarify the scope of my arguments. There are a lot of arguments that involve Abu Huraira and uh, criticisms of Abu Huraira's hadith. But some of these arguments are in reality not uh, related to Abu Huraira per se. Uh, they transcend Abu Huraira. Some of them are actually arguments against the Hadith system as a whole. You know, someone has a problem with Isnads and how they work, and they use Abu Huraira's traditions as an example. Or someone, for example, you know, is uncomfortable with the idea of miracles or supernatural events taking place, you know, during the Prophet's life. And so they'll criticize some traditions Abu Huraira relayed that do involve miracles. You know, in reality, that's not an, an argument against Abu Huraira, per se. It's something that's... Yeah, he's just a scapegoat. Yeah, and uh, there are many other Sahaba who could fit that template. You know, they narrated some supernatural things, you know, devils doing things to humans and jinn and, or angels coming in the form of humans, right? These kinds of things. So even though uh, these uh, issues are important and they definitely should be addressed, um, that is not my interest today because it's not really about Abu Huraira per se. Um, so who will this argument that, who will the arguments in this presentation appeal to? There's several categories of people, you know, that may have varying interest in the arguments I'm presenting today. And the first one is, uh, Orthodox Muslims, right? These are uh, Muslims who follow the scholars of Ahl Sunnah and they'd like to have a better understanding of why we believe Abu Huraira is reliable and why our scholars, uh, you know, treated him the way they did. We'll, we'll go over some of the reasons why. We obviously can't encompass them all. The second category of people the arguments may appeal to 
Are uh, Muslims who generally accept hadith but are uneasy about Abu Huraira's reliability? Um, so this is a kind of a more general audience. Uh, inshallah, a lot of the arguments, the dubious arguments that are brought against Abu Huraira will be addressed. At the same time, we'll give uh, the viewer some of the foundations needed for him to understand you know, why. We're not just engaging in polemics. Um, and the third category, some of the arguments here uh, may appeal to some of the heretical Muslim polemicists who misuse Abu Huraira's traditions. So we're, we're going to address some of those instances of misuse. And so inshallah, some people who, who find themselves on the other side of the camp, they'll uh, find it insightful and maybe uh, reconsider some of their positions on Abu Huraira. Okay, so when we talk about a historical figure that has been the subject of you know, much sectarian uh, dispute, or he's he later became the epicenter of much controversies and uh, polemics. It's important that we distinguish between two concepts or two things, history and satire, right? And uh, I found this nice definition of satire, uh, an Oxford Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, which uh, defines it as the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule, to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. Now, um, for a lack of better term, I find satire, you know, as a good uh, term to describe what is going on with Abu Huraira. Um, you have a historical figure, right? And you have a parody of that historical figure. Um, a certain narrative can be created about that person's life. And uh, it's a problem when that is conflated, you know, with the historical figure. And so we we must try to distinguish, and that's the job of a historian, a competent historian, is to, you know, remove all of that uh, noise in the background and all of these later insertions um, to get to the to the more accurate historical data. And so in this context, there's actually a very uh, useful and insightful uh, term or concept I came across recently on social media, which is the concept of flanderization. Um, I, I bring it here because I feel like Abu Huraira actually has been flanderized in many respects. So what flanderization is essentially, it's, it's this phenomenon observed in some sitcoms and uh, TV shows where, you know, progressively throughout a show season, you know, one character who has a few quirks, you know, a, a few qualities that stand out with time, uh, these quirks get amplified and exaggerated, you know, at the expense of the other, other, uh, qualities and characteristics in that person so much so to the extent that uh, it eventually becomes everything you see in that person right and so this image over here is actually a good example of that uh, at the end of the at the end of the day all you have is, is someone with uh, big ears you know red hair covering most of his body and a giant tie it it erodes everything else about that person's character and um, it's important that we don't do the same with abu Huraira. And uh, this thing can happen on both sides of the camp, by the way. Uh, and that's why I bring it up here as well. Uh, a lot of Muslims, they know so little about Abu Huraira that a few things they know about him actually end up being this uh, flanderized uh, perception of him, that he's this uh, walking oracle genius of hadith that has supernatural you know, memory, and uh, he was with the Prophet, and that's it, right? And that, uh, you know, undermines the humanity of Abu Huraira and uh, 
<clears throat> it undermines his his character and and uh, the reasons why he became who he is. You know, if we if we can understand uh, the reasons and factors that led to Abu Huraira becoming such a prolific transmitter, you know, we don't we don't need to resort to these kinds of things. At the same time, this uh, flanderized perception of Abu Huraira in Sunni circles uh, among the laymen of the Ahl Sunnah, it can actually feed into uh, the polemics against Abu Huraira because a lot of the What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. The, the attacks against Abu Huraira actually stem from similar uh, perceptions of uh, Abu Huraira's legacy in uh, Sunni sources and Muslim sources. Allah alam. Now, before we delve into the specifics and we'll go over the arguments and uh, the data, you know, uh, I thought this would be insightful, which is for us to understand where are these arguments against Abu Huraira coming from historically? Where do they originate from? And obviously these things are often too complex to, to reduce to a single graph, but this is a useful model that, uh, you know, can give us a general idea of what's going on over here when it comes to Abu Huraira. So... With respect to Abu Huraira, the arguments against his reliability and the attacks you know, against his credibility and his hadith primarily stem from two main currents or modes of thought in early Islamic history. The first of them is uh, Shi'ism. So there are early Shi'i polemics uh, against, uh, not just against Abu Huraira, but against a lot of other companions of the Prophet. There are early Shi'i polemics against the reliability of Sunni traditions. Right, and so Abu Huraira obviously is, as as a, a fundamental transmitter in Sunni sources, is caught in that crossfire with other companions of the Prophet as well that are uh, vilified by the Shia. On the other end, there's also another current or mode of thought in early Islamic history that did generate uh, similar anti-Hadith uh, polemics, and that is uh, the early Jahmites and then uh, the Mu'tazila that followed them. Uh, you actually observe in some of the surviving references to them, criticisms of hadith, uh, criticisms of Abu Huraira, very early on. So, for example, uh, Ad-Darimi in his refutation, in his famous refutation of Bishr al-Mirrisi, he actually quotes Bishr slandering Abu Huraira, right? So this is, uh, you know, something very early in Islamic history among these uh, heretical sects. And then there is another third sentiment that's, that's a bit more nebulous and not as well-defined, but it certainly played a role in shaping some perceptions of Abu Huraira and in presenting some arguments, which is Kufan regionalism. Uh, what, Kuf, what, I, what I mean by Kufan regionalism is this, uh, this bias or tendency among the early jurists of Kufa to exclude or uh, undermine the Hadith traditions from other regions of the world, right? And uh, we'll touch on it in more detail. And uh, there is actually a degree of intersectionality between all of these different strands. You know, they're not always fully independent of each other. Uh, you know, a lot of the Shia later in history actually adopted uh, Mu'tazili theology. And so 
some of the arguments, there's actually an overlap between them. At the same time, a lot of the Mu'tazila at some point in history had Shia leanings. So the, the Mu'tazila of Baghdad, for example, were renowned to, to lean towards the Shia. Not that they were, you know, full-blown Shias, but they had that uh, bias. Okay, so that that's uh, about it when it comes to the early uh, Islamic polemics against Abu, Abu Huraira from heretical sects. Now, this legacy of these two different strands <clears throat> is pretty much uh, spread out across many different primary sources, secondary sources, polemical sources. Um, they haven't been consolidated for a long period of time until recently, in the past century, when uh, two men actually wrote books on Abu Huraira that pretty much consolidated much of the, much of this Shi'i and uh, Mu'tazili uh, you know, legacy against Abu Huraira. Uh, the first of them is a Shi'i author by the name of Abdul Hussein Sharaf al-Din. So he wrote a book uh, criticizing Abu Huraira. Oddly enough, uh, Sheikh Mustafa Sibai, if I recall correctly, you know, uh, noted how that strangely came, his authorship of this book, after, you know, calls to unity that were happening again with Sunnis. He later published this book that's very abrasive and very uh, critical of uh, Abu Huraira and, and dishonest in many ways. Um, the other author who wrote a book on this uh, was the notorious uh, Egyptian figure, Mahmoud Abu Raya. He, he similarly wrote a book uh, criticizing Abu Huraira and consolidating many, many of these arguments, Shi'i and uh, Jahmi slash Mu'tazili as well. Uh, there clearly is a Shi'i influence uh, or, or bias in his book, even though he's He's not openly. He did not openly claim to be a Shi'i. There actually are rumors in uh, in Shi'i circles and Shi'i scholarly circles that he was a uh, a crypto Shi'i. He was concealing his Shi'i beliefs. These are rumors. It's it's hard. It's difficult to tell after the man has died, but uh, there definitely is a Shi'i presence uh, in his work. Okay, so these two books pretty much are the main sources written against Abu Huraira. Almost every single polemic that we will observe today against Abu Huraira is either directly or indirectly influenced by these two works. And so they're very important to know. And there's there have been refutations written against them. Um, so it's not like they've uh, you know been present uh, unmatched in, in the scene, in the Muslim scene, public scene. So that's when it comes to early uh, Muslim uh, modes of thought that criticized Abu Huraira. Today, however, there are new arguments, right? New arguments that stem from different frameworks um, that did not exist back in the day. And so I summarized this framework as the liber liberal slash modernist framework uh, of today. And this, uh, you know, liber liberal modernist framework has posited arguments against Abu Huraira as well from different perspectives, you know, such as the feminist uh, perspective and whatnot. And then, uh, finally, this is just an example, um, you know, in figures like Khalid Abu al-Fadl, who was recently cited uh, to undermine Abu Huraira's reliability, there's actually a lot of intersectionality. So, you know, they're essentially mopping up all of this uh, legacy into, into a single polemic against Abu Huraira, even though, you know, an early Mu'tazili, for example, an early uh, Shi'i may not find the feminist appeals valid, right? Because they... There exist similar things in their sources, you know, this idea, these ideas are very new, very modern. And so, nonetheless, a lot of the present day polemicists, they, they, 
try to combine all of that. And so you find Khalid Abu al-Fadl as an example. He actually quotes Abdul Hussein Sharaf al-Din, this Shia author, even though he's a secondary source, right? He quotes things from him and it seems like he assumes it is correct. Um, so yeah, that's just to get a background of, uh, you know, contemporary polemics against Abu Huraira, where they stem from and how to better understand them, um, inshallah. So since we're talking about Abu Huraira, I'll just give a rundown of his biography. Um, even though, of course, he deserves much more than this. Um, Abu Huraira, uh, he was raised as an orphan. He was born in the homelands of Dos, the tribe, the Arabian tribe of Dos, which is uh, present-day Al-Baha in uh, South Saudi Arabia. Uh, historically and culturally, that region is, is Yemeni. Uh, he's an ethnic Yemenite uh, from the greater Arab confederation of Al-Azd. Abu Huraira is around 31 to 35 years younger than Prophet Muhammad And this is an estimate based on a few figures uh, in, in Islamic sources. So it's a rough estimate. Um, and this is very important. This is very important to understand uh, some of the factors that shaped Abu Huraira's life. He is significantly younger than the Prophet and many of the senior Sahaba, uh, like Abu Bakr and Umar and whatnot. Abu Huraira migrated from his homeland to Medina in the seventh year after Hijrah when he was around 30 years old, you know, give or take several years, maybe five years, uh, plus or minus, probably on the lower end. So he's probably younger than a bit younger than 30 uh, when he migrated. And he accompanied Prophet Muhammad وسلم, until the Prophet's death in the year 11 after Hijrah. And so that's around three to four years of companionship. And uh, he spent a significant portion of these three to four years uh, of companionship residing in a space in the Prophet's mosque known as a sufa A sufa was the space in the mosque, in the, in the end of the mosque, dedicated uh, to impoverished uh, sahaba and foreign sahaba, foreign to Medina, uh, who did not have a residence in the city. So it was essentially this, this spot for them to, to live and settle until they could get on their feet and secure their own residence in Medina. So Abu Hurairah spent a significant portion of time as uh, a resident of Al-Sufa. And he actually has a bunch of accounts describing his experience. Um, he died in the year 59 after Hijrah, near the end of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan's reign. So that's around 48 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad, which is a, a very significant uh, detail we'll touch on later, inshallah. So before we delve into Abu Huraira's reliability and the arguments, you know, the case for his... Uh, integrity or responses to his uh, against uh, against uh, responses to the polemics against Abu Huraira it's important that we take a step back and try to understand the factors that led Abu Huraira to become who he is right are there any factors is there something that we could observe in Abu Huraira's life that could explain his rise uh, to prominence as a prolific transmitter of hadith and so this is a needed contextualization. Ironically, even though I'm here to defend Abu Huraira and to make a case for Abu Huraira, um, a fundamental element of my case is that Abu Huraira is not as unique as he is made to seem in many respects. Um, there are many prolific com uh, companions of the Prophet who narrated many hadith who actually share a lot of similarities with Abu Huraira. And it's not a coincidence that uh, you know this subset of of prolific companions 
uh, actually share a lot of these similarities. And so who are these prolific transmitters of hadith among the Sahaba? Um, most importantly, you have Abu Hurairah, Abdullah bin Umar, Anas bin Malik, Aisha, Abdullah bin Abbas, Jabir bin Abdullah, and Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. This list, and maybe a few other companions that are a, a bit less prolific in their transmission, they are referred to as al-Mukthirin, the prolific transmitters of hadith from the Sahaba. And uh, this list is devised based on the volume of traditions ascribed to these figures in hadith sources. So in, in hadith sources, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Musnad al-Imam Ahmad, these seven figures pretty much have the most amount of hadith relayed from them. Okay, so what do these figures have in common um, that would be insightful when it comes to Abu Huraira? Um, before I address that question, um, it's important to note that um, this list is somewhat corroborated. It's, it's something that early Muslim historians observed as well. And so Al-Waqidi, he reproduced the list of uh, the Sahaba who, who were issuing fatwa and were the authorities uh, after the Prophet and after the reign of Umar and Uthman. And he, he said the issuing of fatwa came down to Ibn Abbas, Ibn Umar, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, Abu Huraira, and Jabir. So he's actually almost reproducing the list that uh, you know we have from our observations of hadith sources, which is telling. Okay, so one of the things all of these companions have in common, you know, Abu Huraira, Ibn Umar, Anas bin Malik, Jabir, Aisha, is their age, their age and their era. Nearly all of the muktirin, all of the prolific transmitters from the Sahaba, were junior companions of the Prophet, who were several decades younger than Prophet Muhammad, and other senior companions. There's a lot of uh, Sahaba that are similar in age to Prophet Muhammad. Exactly. Actually, some of the very popular Sahaba, you know, from the Mubashirin, are very similar in age to Prophet Muhammad And some are actually older than him as well. There are some Sahaba who are older. So these, almost all of these prolific transmitters of hadith in our sources were junior companions of the Prophet, several decades younger. Um, what that means is that they were at this sweet spot when it came to age. They weren't old enough to die off too early in history, and they're not young enough to have very little substantive encounters with Prophet Muhammad. So what do I mean by that? The older Sahaba who were you know, in their 60s by the time the Prophet died, in their 50s and 60s, many of them died very early, shortly after the, the Prophet's death. You know, people like Abu Bakr and, and other uh, Sahaba from the uh, Ten Promised Paradise, right? And what that means is they didn't live long enough to reach a time where the majority of the companions died and only a few could live and people start swarming to them for hadith. They lived at a time when all most of the Sahaba were alive and so they were not needed per se. You know, they were not especially needed. Okay, so that's when it comes to the older Sahaba. The, again, there's a younger uh, group of Sahaba, younger than the Muktirin, um, that are too young, right? These are the children during the Prophet's life, uh, people who only, you know, have minimal experiences with them. I saw him, you know, he splashed me with water when I was near the well, or I saw him on a horse on the day of Arafah. You know, people with very minimal experiences. You know, that too is not uh, conducive to someone becoming a prolific transmitter of hadith. And so these junior companions of the Prophet, the Muqsirin, they're in that sweet spot. 
they're the teenagers and young adults uh, during the Prophet's life who who had ample exposure to him, and yet were young enough to live, you know, another few decades after Prophet Muhammad, 40, 50 years after him. Okay, um, another common factor between these Sahaba, which will lead to the next point, is that almost each of them had a role in the Prophet's life that facilitated greater exposure to him. And what I mean by that is uh, not all of the Sahaba are the same. In fact, uh, it could be said that the Prophet probably didn't know most of the Sahaba on a first name basis, right? Medina was big. There were Muslims from all, all over Arabia, from different tribes. So these prolific transmitters uh, that have many traditions recorded from them in the Sirah and in the Sunnah, uh, one common factor is that they all had a much more intimate uh, relationship with Prophet Muhammad And so as an example, Aisha was the Prophet's wife, right? Anas ibn Malik uh, was the Prophet's servant. Abdullah ibn Umar, you know, was the Prophet's brother-in-law and the son of one of his closest companions. Ibn Abbas was the Prophet's cousin, right? His first cousin. He's very close to him. Um, similarly, Abu Huraira had uh, a very intimate exposure to Prophet Muhammad at some point in his life. And that uh, is his residence in Al-Sufa. So because, he, as stated earlier, because he was poor and foreign to Medina, he actually resided in a Sufa for a substantial period of time where he constantly maintained contact with the Prophet Sallallahu and um, along with the many other companions who were uh, in a Sufa. As opposed to other Sahaba who may have been preoccupied you know, with their livelihoods. They had families, uh, they had businesses to run, they had cattle to herd. Um, someone who is uh, just living in the mosque as a homeless man obviously will have... Uh, a more intimate exposure than other people who are living distant from the mosque or, or who have other businesses that uh, preoccupy them. And so Abu Huraira actually touched on this uh, during his life. And so in Sahih al-Bukhari, a quote from him uh, says, the quotes him saying, my brothers from the Muhajirin were occupied with work in the market. And I used to stay by the messenger of Allah for the satiation of my stomach. Meaning that he was always hungry. And so he's always trying to stick to the Prophet ﷺ to, you know, whenever the Prophet would be given food, uh, he would have a share. So he was always around him. Abu Hira said, I would thus witness events when they were absent, and I used to memorize when they forgot. My brothers from the Ansar were occupied with the matters of their wealth, and I was a poor individual among the impoverished of a sufa I used, I used to recall what they had forgotten. So what Abu Hira said here, does does it have attestation from the lives of other companions of the Prophet? Or is he like making up this concept that, oh, people were busy in the markets? Well, let's take a look. The reality is we actually have attestations from other companions of the Prophet uh, admitting that they were preoccupied with their businesses and thus missed out on some events with the Prophet. And so uh, there is an instance in Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim where uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab was unsure of a hadith that Abu Musa al-Ash'ari had presented to him. Uh, Umar even threatened Abu Musa. He threatened to, to beat him up if Abu Musa did not confirm it uh, and verify that it was it was true. So later, another companion of the Prophet, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, confirmed that hadith authenticity to Umar. To that, Umar replied, I was unaware of this matter of the Prophet. I was preoccupied with trade in the markets. 
right? So this is, again, it's uh, reiterating what Abu Huraira said. Naturally, uh, you know, some people had more exposure to others, uh, to, to the Prophet than others. Um, and people who have trades or businesses or, or live distant from the mosque will, will miss out on some things. Similarly, Al-Bara ibn Azib, who's from the Ansar. So Umar's from the Muhajirin. Now you have a quote from a man from the Ansar. I, I believe he's from the Ansar. Al-Bara ibn Azib said, uh, we did not hear every hadith directly from the Messenger of Allah. Our companions used to narrate to us from him. We used to be preoccupied with herding the camels. So he's saying, not everything you know we know about Prophet Muhammad is something we directly witnessed or heard from him. Sometimes our other companions, you know, from the Ansar, they would relate to us things that he said because we were out in the desert, you know, herding our animals and and, and trying to feed them. On a similar note, uh, you know, there exists an instance in the Sirah of Prophet Muhammad when the clan of Banu Salama from the Ansar, which used to live at the outskirts of Medina, they wanted to actually relocate to live and reside near the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet actually advised them to stay where they were. Um, and the wisdom behind that is, is very wise, actually. He wanted the outskirts of Medina to be occupied and to not be empty, uh, leaving Medina vulnerable. Um, so naturally, someone who's living, you know, five kilometers away from the Prophet's mosque or four kilometers away uh, will not, you know, the Prophet would not be as readily accessible to him as someone who's living in the mosque. Right. We cannot uh, compare the two. Uh, on another similar note, Umar ibn Khattab, for example, said that he used to alternate, uh, you know, visits with the Prophet وسلم, with a neighbor of his. Right. So on one day, Umar would uh, take care of his business, his family needs, and his neighbor would go visit the Prophet and then convey, you know, whatever happened that day to him. And then the next day, you know, they, they would alternate. So, again, this is uh, another example of that. Okay, so as stated earlier, uh, Abu Huraira's residence in Asufa meant that he had constant exposure to Prophet Muhammad And we see that in many of his traditions. And so this is a nice example. Um, in Al-Muatta, Abu Huraira said, I was going along with the Messenger of Allah when he heard a man reciting Surah Al-Ikhlas. The Messenger of Allah said, it has become obligatory. Wajabat. And so Abu Huraira said, I asked him, what has become obligatory, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet said, Jannah. So Abu Hulida commented saying, I wanted to tell the man the good news, but I was afraid that I would miss the meal with the Messenger of Allah. I preferred to eat with the Messenger of Allah. May Allah bless him and grant him peace. When I went to the man afterwards, I found that he had gone. Right? So again, he, you, are, you are seeing you know, uh, someone who is always with the Prophet. Um, you know, and it's not like he's always, for example, necessarily, uh, you know, he's following him to study per se. Not all the time. Sometimes he's hungry, right? And there's an account, uh, another account of Abu Huraira. He says, I, I left, I was walking in the street out of hunger. You know, nothing brought me outside except hunger. And he met some other Sahaba who were hungry and then they eventually went to the Prophet So this was a thing uh, during the Prophet's life. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, it entailed greater exposure to Prophet Muhammad, which meant that they had more things to say about Prophet Muhammad, more events that they'd witnessed, and more hadith they could relay. Okay, another factor that greatly faci facilitated the rise of Abu Huraira and the prominence of Abu Huraira is his residence in Medina, 
his later residence in Medina after the Prophet's death. Now, this is something that's actually not inherent in Abu Huraira per se. It's it's an external uh, factor that uh, nonetheless ended up having uh, consequences on his hadith. So the city of Medina and Mecca, uh, but Medina now, since we're talking about Abu Huraira, the city of Medina generally has the cleanest and most reliable hadith culture when compared to other regions of the Muslim world, like Iraq, like Syria, Egypt. It also was a hub of knowledge in early Muslim history. And that meant people were people were traveling to Medina to seek knowledge. And we know many uh, Iraqi tabi'in who lived in Medina at some points in their life, right, to seek knowledge. So that was a thing. People were coming there. And what does that mean? It meant Abu Huraira had exposure to, to, to these students of knowledge, right, more exposure to these students of knowledge than, say, a companion who was living in the outskirts of Asham, right? or in Egypt, the outskirts of Egypt. And so um, some companions of the Prophet who settled in regions like Asham and Egypt, they didn't have the, that luxury of you know students coming to them and uh, you know, this knowledge-oriented culture that existed in Medina. Um, and because of that, their hadith is not as served. It's underserved. And it's their, their tradition's authenticity is, is much more elusive than the authenticity of the traditions of uh, Medinite companions, right? In fact, Syrian and Egyptian isnads are very difficult to deal with because the early Syrians, it's very rare that they have a fully connected you know, isnad. They were not as uh, meticulous in their transmission. So had Abu Huraira resided in somewhere like you know, Syria for the rest of the last three decades of his life, we may have had a very different uh, perception of him, right? We may have had much less authentic traditions uh, documented in our sources. So this this also plays a role in his uh, prominence and uh, documentation of his ahadith. Okay, so we talked about uh, some circumstances, some external circumstances that led uh, these companions to uh, become prolific transmitters of hadith and influence them. But there also are other factors, the personal factors uh, that led these people to, to become who they are. So many of these prolific transmitters of hadith from the Sahaba actually have personality traits that influence them uh, in collecting hadith and then later disseminating them. And, and these personality traits are just as important as uh, the circumstantial uh, you know, factors that we addressed earlier. And so I say this because many people ask, you know, why, why is Abu Huraira you know, prolific? Why not Abu Dhar? Why not uh, this other companion of the Prophet who, who also may have had knowledge? Well, now we'll go over some of these uh, factors, uh, aside, aside from what I mentioned earlier, that contextualize this. One of the main personal qualities we observe in Abu Huraira is attention to detail. This is something that you can observe in his uh, transmission, and it's very understandable. Uh, naturally, when two people, you know, two people may witness the same event but one of them may have a lot more to say about that event than the other due to their disparate attention to detail. And this is something we all experience. Uh, you know, you can attend a Friday sermon. If someone has a very passive presence and is not actively paying attention, uh, naturally, he might have a few sentences to, to share about that khutbah, while someone else may remember a few paragraphs from that sermon. Likewise, you know, this thing existed during the Prophet's life. Uh, some companions were more present than others. Uh, some had a lot more attention to detail than others. And so someone who pays a lot of attention to detail 
will observe small things in the Prophet and will will make all these observations that eventually become more hadith, more hadith to transmit. And so Abu Huraira was one of those. Where do we observe that? Well, here are some examples. Um, in a tradition in Sahih al-Bukhari, Abu Huraira said, the people say, Abu Huraira has narrated too much from the Prophet. I then met a man and I asked him, what did the Messenger of Allah recite in Isha prayer yesterday? He replied, I do not know. Abu Huraira said, I then asked him, did you not witness it? He said, I did. Abu Huraira then said, but I know. He recited such and such surah. And, uh, you know, the point of, of the statement of Abu Huraira is to say that even though someone else may have witnessed it, I was paying attention. Right? And the person not paying attention, the person who's maybe thinking about something else, thinking about his family or his, his business endeavors, he's going to miss out on a lot of things. Another nice example from Abu Huraira's life, um, there's a hadith Abu Huraira reports in, the, in Sahih al-Bukhari, where the Messenger of Allah uses the word sakin to refer to a knife. And this is the popular word used in most Arabic dialects to refer to a knife today, sakin. But when Abu Huraira quoted the Prophet saying that, he comment, Abu Huraira commented saying, By Allah, that was the first day I heard of the word sakin. We only used to say mudya uh, when referring to knives. And uh, Abu Huraira, it's not like Abu Huraira, you know, when he moved to Medina, he just abandoned his dialect. He actually continued to use the word mudya later in his life. We have other traditions of him where he, he uses the term. So it's not like he forgot it and he replaced it with sakin. Um, rather, he, he relayed the Prophet's exact wording and he noted this, this seemingly trivial detail, right? Oh, the Prophet used a different word for the same thing. And he, and he made note of it and he continued to speak of it and he didn't conflate it, right? Like he did not replace the Prophet's term with a synonymous term, which is totally acceptable. You know, he, he could have said mudya and just not noted that. And as a side note, this is interesting. Uh, the, my father-in-law informed me that the term mudya is actually used in some parts of Yemen today. Uh, so it's an obscure term, but uh, some Arab tribes and, and uh, regions still use it. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> as we said earlier, someone with more attention to detail uh, will have more to say uh, about the Prophet and the events that he witnessed with the Prophet. But there's also another personality trait that facilitates someone's rise to prominence as a transmitter of hadith and a, a knowledgeable person, which is uh, boldness and curiosity, or bold curiosity. Um, and in this regard, the Tabi'i Mujahid said, the shy one and the arrogant one cannot attain knowledge. And what he means by that is someone who's shy will be too timid to confront his teacher and ask him questions and, and try to understand, right? And because of that, he ends up not attaining knowledge. Similarly, the arrogant one is too arrogant to ask questions. He believes he has, he has it all. And so consequently, he won't get increase in knowledge. And so this is something we should also consider when reflecting on Abu Huraira's rise as a hadith of transmitter. In many instance, instances, the Sahaba were very shy to confront the Prophet ﷺ, but Abu Huraira would do so. In fact, we have quotes from the Sahaba that further highlight the extent. You know, there's a quote from some of them. Uh, they say that we use we you would be too intimidated to ask the Prophet certain things about about the faith, but we would rejoice when a man from the desert 
you know, a, a coarse Bedouin would come and would start asking the prophet and engaging with him because that gives us the opportunity to listen and learn, right? You have traditions of other Sahaba. They were so uh, intimidated by the prophet that they, they would be unable to look at him in his face, right? So these things vary between the Sahaba. And naturally, someone with uh, you know more boldness and more curiosity will end up speaking more with the prophet and learning more and, and having his questions answered. And on this, there is a tradition that specifically notes this quality in Abu Hurairah. It, it quotes Ubay ibn Ka'b, the prophet's companion, saying, Abu Hurairah was bold with the prophet. He would ask him about things that we did not ask him about. It should be noted that there is weakness in this uh, tradition. It's not. Um, the weakness is, is that this tradition is actually relayed through a series of descendants of Ubay ibn Ka'b. So his grandson, there's a great grandson, and they're not that well known. So Ibn Habban maybe may have authenticated it, and the weakness may not be too severe because they're like descendants of Ubay who are relaying it among from themselves. So maybe, maybe it may be authentic to Ubay, but nonetheless, either way, uh, this is something we actually can observe in Abu Huraira uh, and his legacy. And so here is an example. Um, in one hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, Abu Huraira said, uh, I said, O Messenger of Allah, who is the happiest peop of people for your intercession on the day of resurrection? The Prophet ﷺ replied, I expected, O Abu Huraira, that no one would ask me about this hadith before you, due to your keenness for hadith that I had observed. The happiest people for my intercession on the day of resurrection is whoever said, La ilaha illallah, sincerely from his heart. So he asked him a question, and the Prophet is uh, impressed by his curiosity, right? Many companions may have not even thought about that question, let alone, you know, confront the Prophet uh, with it. Another example of Abu Huraira's bold curiosity is uh, an account Abu Huraira relayed uh, in Al-Muatta. Uh, Abu Huraira said, I was going along with the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he heard a man reciting Surah Al-Ikhlas. I actually mentioned this tradition earlier um, as an example of Abu Huraira's constant company of the Prophet but it's also insightful in other respects as we'll see uh, he heard a man reciting Surah Al-Ikhlas therefore the Messenger of Allah said it has become obligatory Wajabat. Abu Huraira said so I asked him what has become obligatory O Messenger of Allah the Prophet said Jannah Abu Huraira said at Till the end of the hadith, he says he wanted to tell the man, and then he stayed with the Prophet, as we heard earlier. But the relevant portion of this tradition is that Abu Huraira witnessed an event, right? He heard the Prophet say something. But his presence was not passive. You know, another companion may have heard the Prophet say something similar and didn't put much thought into it, right? He moved on in his life, and uh, maybe he thought it was some esoteric thing from the Prophet or something a miracle or something. But Abu Huraira actually went out of his way to ask this the Prophet about this statement. He said that was about another man. Right? And so that meant he had you know, that information that someone else may have not had. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, we have another example. <laughs> Abu Huraira said, when the Messenger of Allah would make takbir for salah, he would be silent for a short period of time. And then he would begin his recitation. So Abu Huraira uh, said, I thus said, O Messenger of Allah, may my mother or may my father and mother's lies be your ransom. What do you say during your silence between takbir and your recitation? 
the Messenger of Allah then uh, told him of a dua that he says um, between the takbir and the recitation in salah. What's insightful about this is it's not just the Prophet's actions or statements that Abu Hurairah is curious about and interested in. It's also the Prophet's silence, right? So he, he he's very, you know, curiously bold um, in how he approaches the Prophet. He saw him silent and he wanted to know what he was doing, right? Now, someone else might be too intimidated to ask this question because it seems a bit too invasive, right? It may seem a bit too invasive. Um, so that's that. This hadith is also another good example of Abu Huraira's attention to detail, right? That he's looking at the small things of the Prophet, how long he was staying quiet, what was he doing before and after this. And, um, I don't want to mix and match that hadith too much, but I could have mentioned this as well as, as an example of Abu Huraira's attention to detail. Okay. Another factor that distinguishes different companions of the Prophet from others is that... Uh, some of them have very different personalities. Um, more specifically, some of them are a lot more extroverted than others. And some of them are a lot more accessible than others. Naturally, someone who is more extroverted and much more accessible will end up having more students, right? More people coming to him, more people hearing his ahadith, and more people spreading them, as opposed to a companion who may be knowledgeable, but uh, lives in recluse, you know, lives in isolation, or is very stern and intimidating to other people, so they don't flock to him in mass. And um, there actually are some traditions from Abu Huraira that hint that he was very extroverted, um, and he was not as introverted as some other companions who lived lives of seclusion. And so, for example, there's a report in Sahih ibn Hibban uh, that shows a man from Al-Yamama, which is present-day Najd, he enters the Prophet's mosque, this, this unknown tabi, and he's confronted by a man who just strikes a conversation with him. Um, uh, the man advises uh, this foreigner, Oh, Yamami, referring to that he's from Yamama, do not say that Allah, do not tell your, ever tell your companion that Allah will not forgive him, and do not ever tell someone that he will never enter Jannah. Um, and the man responded, saying that this is something we actually say often in our homeland. Uh, and then he said, who are you? Like, wh why are you telling me this? He said, I'm Abu Huraira. So there are examples, a lot of examples of Abu Huraira, like casually initiating conversations or making jokes while he's walking in the street or, or, or talking to kids and joking around with the kids. He's not an introvert, or at least that's my reading of his life. And he used to do other things like on Friday, while the people were all seated in the mosque, uh, you know, waiting for the imam to come out, he would stand near the pulpit and begin narrating a hadith to the crowds. Right? So he was not intimidated by, by uh, big gatherings or big groups of people. Um, and he also used to have hadith gathering every Thursday in the mosque, uh, where he would narrate a hadith to his companions. Now, let's take a step back. Khalid Abu Fadl, in his uh, book, on he, he, he addresses a lot of things, but one of the things he talks about is Abu Huraira and Hadith. He poses a question, which is, why do we not observe uh, other knowledgeable companions uh, of the Prophet narrating a Hadith? And he mentions Abu Dhar among them. He says, why, why is it that it's Abu Huraira who's prolific and not Abu Dhar? Well, let's compare both figures in this context. You know, Abu Huraira, this, he had this very extroverted person living in Medina, lived long after the Prophet, 
right? Everything, everything we said earlier. And then you have Abu Dhar. You know, for those who know about Abu Dhar, Abu, Abu Dhar lived his final years as a hermit. He lived in a village outside Medina, at the outskirts of Medina. Um, Abu Dhar was a very stern man. Right? He's very harsh, very stern in his criticism and, and uh, advice. So naturally, he'd also uh, intimidate people, and people would not feel as comfortable going to him. So you cannot compare someone who lived in, in the, the urban uh, city of Medina and uh, you know lived this many years to a hermit you know who who lived in the desert and died in obscurity you know when abu dhar died there are accounts of like they his he was with his wife right and people passer passerbys came and they helped with the barrier burial so the question really answers itself uh, you know when it comes to you know why abu huraira and not abu dhar well there's actually a lot of reasons why why do you think khalid abu fadl picked Abu Dhar al-Ghitari as an example. Do you think it was like arbitrary or did he have any good reason for thinking that he is comparable to Abu Huraira? So he mentions other Sahaba. He says Abu Bakr, Umar, and Ali, and Abu Dhar, if I recall correctly. But I specifically mention Abu Dhar because the, the contrast is so like evident. Yeah. You cannot even like compare the two. Um, and as for Abu Bakr, Umar, and Ali, a lot of what I mentioned earlier applies to them, right? So Abu Bakr died very early. Yeah. Uh, Umar relatively died early as well, right? Abu Huraira lived around 30 years after Umar, right? Um, so it's really that sweet spot after the, like the year 46, after the year 50, when the major scholars of the Sahaba were dead. And all you had were these younger uh, companions of the Prophet, who also learned from, you know, they, they learned from the senior companions but since they were the only ones alive they ended up being the most prolific and the most they had the most students and most hadith related from them correct me if i'm wrong abdullah i'm not sure if you talk about it in the next slides uh but uh correct me if i'm wrong uh, was there a narration from abu Bakr anhu where he one of the reasons why he gave for not uh narrating many hadith was that he was also hesitant or worried or extra cautious or concerned that he would make a mistake doing mm. so so would you say that another trait if we could call it that mm. is confidence that maybe abu Huraira was just simply confidence confident that he got it right and was perfectly comfortable uh given his strong memory and whatnot to relay the hadith while others may have you know, been overly cautious because I mean, as you know, in real life, there are human beings mm -hmm. like that. People who are yeah. who just like overdo it when it comes to being precautious. It's not necessarily a negative trait. Um, mm -hmm. While there, some are more bold, right? And you know, successful business people tend to be more daring and risk. Yeah, I, I don't want to digress too much, but is there something yeah. like that there? Or that that certainly is a a sentiment that was widespread among many companions of the Prophet. And uh, I'm actually going to address it in, in later slides. Maybe the next slide, actually. Sorry about, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, so uh, this is it, actually. Uh, uh, another quality in a companion that may distinguish him is, is his motives, his motivations. Uh, people have different motivations to do things, right? Um, and Abu Huraira clearly had this sense of responsibility to disseminate the knowledge that he'd acquired from the Prophet Sallallahu and so there's a quote uh, from Abu Huraira uh, where he says, uh, the people say, 
Abu Hurairah has transmitted too much. And by Allah, had it not been for two verses in the Quran, I would not have transmitted a single hadith. He would then recite uh, the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah. Indeed, those who conceal what we sent down of clear proofs and guidance after we made it clear for the people in the scripture, those are cursed by Allah and cursed by those who curse. Right? So he did not want to be uh, you know, lumped in with those figures that are condemned in the verse. And so he w- didn't want to conceal any of the knowledge. Right? He had this sense of obligation to disseminate traditions. So that's one of his motives, his motivators. Other companions of the Prophet were demotivated to spread the hadith. They were too anxious about misconning the Prophet. Um, and so they just didn't relate a hadith. And so people stand out, you know, with things like this. When you when you start stacking these different personality traits on top of each other and the different circumstances that we talked about earlier on top of each other, it's why you end up with a Sahabi with like 700 or 900 hadith and a Sahabi with like 20, right? These things start to explain these trends that we observe. And and many of these things, by the way, they're not unique to Abu Huraira, but I'm, I'm highlighting them in Abu Huraira. But uh, you will most likely observe them in, or most of them, in the other prolific transmitters of hadith from the Sahaba. Um, you know, you have companions of the Prophet, you know, that uh, had such a fear of misconning the Prophet that it was to an extent debilitating. Like it prevented them from narrating hadith to the public. And, you know, may Allah reward them. This this fear for the Prophet Sunnah is also a good thing, right? It's two wings. It's two wings of a bird that like end up balancing out. Um, some Sahaba were motivated to spread a hadith, and some were too worried about miscoding. And um, Alhamdulillah, some did, and they ended up preserving the Sunnah. And the, the ones who feared, you know, miscoding the Prophet, maybe they had valid concerns. Maybe they 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 weren't sure about their memory of, and, and uh, some things that they had heard from the Prophet Okay, here's another exercise or or another observation. Um, this is something that, that has a, lo- a lot more room for research and study. Essentially, when we look at Abu Huraira's life, we see that he was definitely fluent in Persian. Uh, there is a tradition in Sunan Abi Dawood that presents him casually engaging in, in Persian with a Persian woman uh, over a dispute that happened between her and her husband uh, on the custody of the child of a child. Um, so he was fluent in Persian. He may have also been fluent in Abyssinian. Now, there actually is no language called uh, Abyssinian today. The Arabs used to refer to, you know, Ethiopia and that area as Abyssinia. So it may have been one of the languages spoken in in Abyssinia. It's referred to as Abyssinian by the Arabs. Um, There are examples of Abu Huraira saying things in Abyssinian, right, in front of his companions. So I'm not sure if he was fully fluent in Abyssinian or maybe knew some phrases. But either way, he certainly was fluent in Persian. Why do I bring this? Well, obviously, uh, just uh, common sense, learning a new language requires a lot of uh, memory, exercise of memory. You're learning new terms, you're learning new sentence structures, morphology, uh, and you have to remember those terms and and connect them to an image in your mind. So someone, someone learning a language does tell you something about it, or someone having a good propensity to learn languages, two languages as an adult. It does tell you something about him. In fact, there are studies that suggest that um, learning a foreign language may be a good intervention, you know, to to uh, mitigate Alzheimer's or dementia, right? So there clearly is something connected to to memory and language learning. Um, there's still it's it seems to be a novel 
field or a novel uh, idea that's still being researched. But there is, it seems like there is more to it. <clears throat> and so with that being said, this is something we should also keep in mind when, uh, you know, uh, looking at Abu Huraira. If it, his fluency in these languages certainly do tell you something about his ability to pick, pick things up and to remember things and, and whatnot. Wallah ta'ala alam. Okay. So we went over some of the main factors that gave rise to the likes of Abu Huraira, right? So now we have a better idea of, you know, what is it that could have led him to become who he is? Now we'll talk about some of the indicators of his reliability. You know, why is he reliable? Okay, we understand that he has this predisposition to become a prolific transmitter of hadith. But why why is he reliable? Well, there are several reasons why we why I think an average person should could conclude that Abu Huraira is reliable. One of those things is um, the testimony of his peers, his senior companions and peers from the Sahaba. So um, believe it or not, there's actually some Sahaba who transmit from Abu Huraira. They transmit some hadith from him. And so you have Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, quoted presenting a tradition from Abu Huraira. And Abu Ayyub is, is much older than Abu Huraira, right? He's a senior companion of the Prophet. Um, you have Ibn Abbas, the Prophet's cousin, reporting some things from Abu Huraira in Sahih Bukhari. You have Jabir ibn Abdullah, the Prophet's companion, reporting from Abu Huraira, Anas ibn Malik. And you have Abu Umama ibn Sahil ibn Hunayf. He is the junior. He's like one of the kids during the Prophet's life. So he's not compared to the rest of the Sahaba, but I mentioned him for the sake of consistency. And I, and I think we could also say that maybe not all, all of them, but at least some of these companions were accepted by everyone. Including the Kufans, the Mu'tazila, and the Shia. <clears throat> Definitely yeah, Ibn Abbas. Like, there's no argument over Ibn Abbas, I believe, among any of these groups. I'm glad you mentioned this. So, uh, Abu Ayyub al Ansari and Jabir ibn Abdullah are actually viewed positively in Shiaism. So, uh, generally, Ibn Abbas, there's mixed things about him in, in Shiaism. There's yeah. positive and negative traditions. So, but some Shia do, do respect him. Um, so yeah, that's telling. And the Mu'tazila obviously revere Ibn Abbas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's telling as well, right? But um, the Sahaba relaying things from him uh, demonstrated that he was prominent among them. He's not like a nobody that no one knows. Uh -huh. uh, at the same time, it, it demonstrates their approval of what he transmitted in those instances. So that's one thing that uh, gives you a hint into his reliability at the time. There's another related thing, it may not be as powerful as you know the Sahaba's testimony, but the Tabi'in's tutelage under Abu Huraira is also very insightful. So Abu Huraira he thrived at a time when other knowledgeable companions of the Prophet existed: Aisha ibn Abbas, uh, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, right? The Bukhtirin that I mentioned earlier. They were alive mostly during Abu Huraira's life. So. The fact that many of the prominent tabi'in flocked to Abu Huraira while these other figures existed as well, it, it does tell you something about him, right? It's like a testimony to his status and prominence among the students of the Sahaba, right? So actually, uh, some Sahaba share students, like Ibn Abbas has some students who also were students of Abu Huraira, right? And that tells you something. It means that um, it it fit together, right? They, they saw Ibn Abbas, someone like uh, Tawus ibn Kaysan al-Yamani, student of Ibn Abbas, but he also narrated things from Abu Huraira. Um, so that 
tells you that these tabi'in uh, didn't notice any uh, disparities, any any odd disparities that would you know distinguish Abu Huraira from other companions, right? And so you have shared students of Abu Sa'id, shared students of Ibn Abbas, um, and, and other Sahaba as well. So them flocking to Abu Huraira is telling. In fact, not only did some tabi'in you know, study under different Sahaba and then go to Abu Huraira and learn from him as well. But some Sahab, some Tabi'in used to also consult with Abu Huraira about traditions relayed by other companions, right? So there's an example in Sahih Muslim where this Tabi'i Abdullah bin Shaqiq approaches Abu Huraira to ask him about a hadith of Ibn Abbas that he was uncomfortable with or he was unsure about. And Abu Huraira confirms that it is a valid hadith. It's the sunnah of the Prophet. What does that tell you though? It means that in the eyes of Abdullah ibn Shaqiq, this tabi'i who had met Ibn Abbas, Abu Huraira was just as much of an authority, right? Or maybe even more of an authority than Ibn Abbas, right? And this can be said about many other uh, tabi'in as well. So the tabi'in actually going to Abu Huraira and Abu Huraira having so many companions, right? You know, some lists of Abu Huraira's companions and people who, who narrated from him, from the tabi'in, you know, they're very extensive they get up to like 700, 800 names, right? So that's a lot. Other, a lot of other Sahaba did not have that luxury. So there clearly clearly was something about him that the Tabi'in saw, um, you know, that, that's telling uh, about his status and prominence at the time while the other Sahaba existed and while their other students as well existed. And I mean, just to play devil's advocate, um, can someone question that, uh, that it's established that these tabi'in and, and companions did see Abu Harir in high regard? Like, do the asanid that we have up to the tabi'in or up to the companions that relayed from Abu Harir, are they, are they authentic? Uh, many are. Many are. Um, and so so it, would be, uh, it would be like a crazy stretch to deny his... Status, at least among he certainly was a very popular figure among the tabi'in, you know, without without a doubt. And not only that, I mean, related to this point, um, what's the qual? What are what's the type of tabi'in that are going to Abu Huraira? You have some tabi'in that are very like knowledgeable tabi'in. They're, they're not like nobodies, um, like Saeed ibn al Musayyab, for example. Yeah. Right. Saeed ibn Musayyab is described as one of the most knowledgeable of the tabi'in or the best of the tabi'in. In yeah. some uh, reports, yeah. Abu Salama ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, right? He's the son of Abdul Rahman ibn Auf. He never met him. He's he's too young, but uh, he was a knowledgeable uh, companion. He influenced by the Ansar, uh, met uh, Ibn Abbas. He used to debate Ibn Abbas, right? This is also another important thing. These Tabi'in, you know, we view the Tabi'in as like students of the Sahaba, right? They're subservient to them. That's how we look at them. But that wasn't always the case, right? Uh, Abu Salama bin Abdul Rahman bin Auf used to regularly debate Ibn Abbas and challenge him on his positions, right? So this this gives you a, a glimpse into the nature of these relationships. It's not like uh, because Abu Huraira was a companion of the Prophet, everyone just came to him and, and listened to what he had to say. There wasn't that immediate inferiority complex. I mean, if once it came to the deen, to the religion, they would debate if they felt that. They not necessarily, yeah. So, some tabi'in had very strong personalities and the same Abu Salama who was always debating Ibn Abbas, and because of that, Ibn Abbas wasn't wasn't comfortable with him sharing his knowledge to him. Abu Salama is one of the most prolific companions of Abu Huraira, right? So he's very close to Abu Huraira, but very uh, 
challenging of Ibn Abbas, right? So again, um, the 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 quality of the Tabi'in is also telling, right? These are not like nobodies. A lot of the people who relate from Abu Rayra, like Tawus ibn Kaysan Yamani, the student of Ibn Abbas, he's a scholar. He's a student of Ibn Abbas, but also narrated from Abu Rayra. And many others, you know, the scholars of Mecca, the scholars of Medina, um, the, the muftis of Mecca and Medina, you know, these are not like, people. I mean, uh, anyone familiar, anyone, anyone familiar with tafsir works would immediately know all these names. You know, Tawus, uh, Saeed, uh, Jabir. I mean, so these are these are prominent scholars. And and these are people who who can compare Abu Huraira to other companions of the Prophet, right? It's not like uh, they don't have a reference point. So again, uh, the the Tabi'ins flocking to Abu Huraira is insightful as well. Yeah. Just. Just as you know, just as the Sahaba relaying things from Abu Rayra can be insightful and indicative of his reliability. Okay, so there's another other things that we observe in Abu Huraira's transmission that um, attest to his um, meticulousness, uh, his retention, and his integrity as well. And uh, here are some examples. In a tradition in Sahih al-Bukhari, Abu Huraira once said, "The Prophet said." The best of sadaqah is that which leaves sustaining wealth behind it. The giving hand is better than the receiving hand. And start with your dependence. Abu Huraira said, The woman says, You shall either feed me or divorce me. The slave says, Feed me and use me. The son says, Feed me. To whom do you entrust me? The listeners, the bystanders, commented saying, Oh Abu Huraira, did you hear this from the Messenger of Allah? وسلم, he replied, No. This is from Abu Huraira's sack. This hadith, I, you know, is used to actually criticize Abu Huraira. I've seen uh, polemicists misuse this hadith, but ironically, it's actually a testimony to Abu Huraira's reliability. How? With weak transmitters and unreliable transmitters, sometimes they they get so too confused or so delusional to the extent that they end up mixing their own interpretation of the hadith as part of the hadith. Right, and so their understanding of the hadith or their takeaway of, from the hadith ends up becoming a quote from the Prophet ﷺ. Right, they have this ghafla, this uh, non-meticulousness and non-attention uh, to what they're relaying, and so they end up muddling everything together. Right, so a transmitter being able to partition a hadith properly is actually indicative of uh, a good degree of, uh, of of reliability of his memory and retention of that hadith. So what, what is Abu Huraira doing in this hadith? He relays the tradition from the Prophet وسلم, essentially saying, uh, you know, if you're going to give sadaqah, start with your family, right? Start with your family, they, they have priority. Abu Huraira provides commentary on the hadith as an example, right? Obviously, a woman says, you shall either feed me or divorce me. A man who ends up not providing for his family ends up in a divorce, right? So it takes priority. The slave says, feed me and use me. The son says, feed me, to whom do you entrust me? So he's highlighting the, the importance of, of providing for your dependents first, right? That phrase of his, he could have easily added it to the to the Prophet's hadith 40 years after the Prophet's death by accident, right? Um, his ability to distinguish that is a, a testimony to his reliability. There's another example of this um, in a tradition in Sahih al-Bukhari. Abu Huraira once relayed a long hadith on the last man to enter Jannah. In that hadith, Allah is quoted finally telling the man, 
as a man gets admitted into Jannah, Allah uh, is quoted granting the man all of his wishes. Allah then says, you shall have all of that and an equal amount in addition to that. So double what you ask, right? That's what Abu Huraira's hadith uh, presents Allah telling this man. In that tradition, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri told Abu Huraira after he had relayed that hadith, the messenger of Allah said, Allah said, you shall have all of that and 10 times as well. So Abu Huraira said, uh, Allah granted the man double his wishes. Abu Sa'id is telling Abu Huraira, the Prophet said 10 times what you had wished for. Abu Huraira replied to Abu Sa'id saying, I only remember from the Prophet that he said, you shall have all of that and an equal amount in addition to that. This is a very insightful tradition, which also sheds light on uh, Abu Huraira's uh, solid retention, right? Because you now have trust in Abu Huraira that he is going to narrate to you what he heard himself, right? Abu Sa'id, maybe he, he's saying the truth, right? No one's doubting Abu Sa'id, but Abu Huraira is comfortable relaying what he himself heard, right? He is not going to let someone else dictate how he should narrate it. He's not going to let any external influences change his his own rendition of the hadith, right? And uh, the, con the, the contrary of this phenomenon is actually observed in weak transmitters in a phenomenon called talqeen, right? Uh, you have these later uh, transmitters that are unreliable. People can come to them and they can feed them traditions that are not theirs. They can feed them certain phrases or wordings in a tradition and these uh, oblivious, weak transmitters end up reporting that, you know, with their own isnads, uh, unknowingly, back to the Prophet, even though it was something they never heard, right? So with Abu Huraira, you know that he knows what he heard and what he did not hear, right? And that he will, he is meticulous in how he presents his information, and uh, he does not uh, let external influences shape or alter his own renditions of the accounts, even if they come from reliable sources, right? So that's very telling. Okay, so again, there are many many reasons or many examples of why Abu is reliable. And uh, this is uh, one thing that uh, is very interesting. And there's a lot of room for study and research in this, uh, in, in this uh, aspect of hadith, which is Abu Huraira's consistency. So what do we mean by uh, consistency here? Well, uh, often in hadith, you have a transmitter, uh, you know, when he relays an account or a hadith, he will end up relaying it in many different settings in different times. He'll have a hadith gathering this year where he narrates it to a group of people. The next year he has a gathering in a mosque, he'll narrate the same hadith and he'll narrate it in his house five years later to a different group of people. That happens very often in hadith. One way to spot unreliable transmitters is that they're they're inconsistent in their transmission of these accounts, right? So someone, uh, some of the early hadith uh, critics like Shorba used to tr test transmitters this way. He would hear a hadith from him in one setting on a certain day. Later, maybe weeks later, months later, years later, he would go to the same transmitter and ask to hear the same hadith again, and he would compare their rendition. Are there si significant differences? Are there a lot of insertions or omissions or or distortions in the structure of the hadith? So if a, if a transmitter is consistent in the way he relays the hadith across the ears, that is telling. You know that that tells you that there is a degree of retention in his uh, transmission, right? 
And uh, likewise, with Abu Huraira, this is something we observe in his hadith. And we're fortunate enough to be able to observe it regularly. Because he had so many companions transmitting from him, often one hadith of Abu Huraira will have like 10 different uh, asanid, 10 different independent isnad. So you can actually compare the wordings and uh, you can get an idea of what's going on over here. You know, how reliable is Abu Huraira? Is, uh, is there like drastic differences, right? And so in a, few, in a few examples, I have one example here. This is a hadith from Abu Huraira. Um, on, it's on the, the first... A uh, group of people to enter paradise, right? And each of these, uh, th so these are four different versions of that hadith from Abu Huraira, four different isnads back to Abu Huraira, right? So a different companion. In this hadith, it's Hamam ibn Munabbih relaying this hadith from uh, Abu Huraira. This is a Yemeni isnad. Uh, in this in this account, it's Abu Salih al-Samman relaying this hadith from Abu Huraira. I said it's a Kufo Medanite isnad. I'm inventing these fancy terms. But it's it's for a lack of better terms, really. Abu Saleh was from Medina, but he used to travel to Kufa. So this hadith starts in Medina and it ends up in Kufa at some point in history. Um, and then you have the third account. It's relayed by Muhammad ibn Sirin. It's a Basran Isnad. And then you have this uh, Shami Medinite Isnad. So Abu Huraira's companion Al-A'raj is from Medina. Abu Zinad, Medina. But then the transmitter from Abu Zinad is Syrian. Nonetheless, Four different accounts of the same hadith from Abu Huraira. I made, uh, you know, I put squares around the, the main clauses in the hadith. And as you can see in these different accounts, the hadith maintains its structure, right? This hadith likely was, uh, these different accounts likely were uttered in different settings. Just because they come from different companions, there's a good pro good chance that they're, they were uttered at different times in different settings. But... Uh, this hadith retains its its lexicon, it retains its its structure, it retains the information. There's no no like drastic distortions taking place, right? So read sometimes even like if you get even more accounts, you know I don't want to. If I got more accounts, it would have been too too cluttered. But there are more. It's not. You start seeing even the order of the hadith generally retained, right? Uh, when you compare the colors and you see. Yeah, there may be uh, here and there one clause is put before the other. Maybe that's from the transmitters. But generally speaking, there is consistency you observe across all these accounts, which does tell you that there is a consistency in Abu Huraira himself, right? Because the opposite of this phenomenon is called Atirab in Hadith, which is a dis discrepancy. Uh, and you have this in Hadith. Sometimes the original source of the Hadith is so discrepant in his... Uh, uh, transmission of the account you can't tell what's the original account like there's so much differences in the downstream accounts from the original source but with Abu Huraira because of this consistency you observe in him you can actually uh, recreate uh, very very accurately the original wording that Abu Huraira had and you can get a very good idea of the original structure of the hadith as a note the only account here that lacks several clauses you know from the hadith originally when compared to other accounts there's a reason why it does um muhammad bin sirin says uh that it was in the context of a debate that was taking place they were debating you know uh, are there more men in jannah or more women and so abu huraira pretty much recites this hadith and he cites uh, relevant clauses from it so he didn't cite the entire hadith but even then uh, in the other, all the other examples, and even in this one, uh, 
again, you see the clauses are maintained. Even the order sometimes is like pretty accurate. So this consistency goes back to Abu Huraira. There are so many examples you can do of this with the longer hadith of Abu Huraira. There clearly is uh, a structure and even lexicon, you know, the same word, using the same words. It's maintained, you know, across these different settings where Abu Huraira is narrating it, which again, it's another testimony uh, unto his reliability. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Okay, so we talked about uh, factors that led to Abu Huraira's rise as a prolific transmitter or factors that influenced him. We talked about uh, some indicators of Abu Huraira's reliability. Uh, and now we'll go to the, the question that many people ask that often is a source of controversy when it shouldn't be, which is the volume of Abu Huraira's hadith corpus. How many ahadith did Abu Huraira transmit? Now, in the context of a lot of these polemical discussions, there is a figure that is uh, in circulation, which is that uh, Abu Huraira relayed 5,374 ahadith. Right? And this is used to criticize Abu Huraira. Where does this figure come from? It's actually derived from account of the lost Musnad of Baqib and Makhlad. So it's just uh, the section in this lost book on Abu Huraira. Someone counted all of the hadith you know, of Abu Huraira, and he came up with this figure, 5,374 hadith. Uh, how, how old is this book? Uh, Baqib and Makhlad, if I recall correctly, was a student of uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal. Hmm. Um, so, he, so, so the Muslim of Ahmad uh, influ likely influenced the Muslim of Baqib and Makhlad. Uh, I could be wrong though on that, but uh, this is what I remember. With that being said, this figure, 5,374, is not really representative of Abu Huraira's transmission. In fact, there are barely 5,374 authentic hadith in the entire Sunnah, you know, let alone from Abu Huraira. So what is this figure? Where does it come from? The reality of the matter is that um, it includes repetitions. So, you know, the same hadith can have, as I showed in the earlier example, four different uh, people relaying it from Abu Huraira. They have four accounts. But at the end of the day, these four accounts are one hadith. Right, but in this count uh, and similar figures that are circulated in hadith texts and hadith primers, primers they often include repetitions, um, and it also includes inauthentic traditions. Right, so there are a lot of traditions that are related to Abu Hurairah that, that are not authentic to him. Right, and so these things obviously should not be included in the count when we're trying to assess how many a hadith Abu Hurairah relate. So it's a not it's it's an inaccurate figure that does not truly represent. Abu Huraira's transmission. Now, as another example, in the Musnad of Ahmad, Abu Huraira's Musnad has around 3,866 hadith, also includes weak hadith and repetitions. You know, the same hadith relate through different sources, and they count each source as a different hadith. Okay. So, when we want to get to the bottom of things, let's uh, take a step back and start with the most verified sources, right? Always, if you want to have a better idea, a more accurate understanding of a, of a companion of the Prophet and his hadith, the first sources to refer to are the Sahihin, Sahih Bukhari Muslim. So the scholar Al-Humaydi, uh, he has a book uh, on the hadith of the Sahihin. His count of Abu Huraira's hadith was 606 in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim. 
Okay. Now, I, I made my own count and I concluded that uh, there were 600 hadiths of Al-Bukhari, of Abu Hurairah, Sahih al-Muslim. And you know, the difference between 600 and 606 is not that consequential. But at the same time, there, there are different reasons why uh, that can happen, right? Sometimes uh, two reports may seem like they're different reports, but in reality, they're the same. Right, they, they, one is transmitted by meaning, or one is a summary of the other. There are many different reasons why uh, uh, counts can vary from different scholars, but at the end of the day, they shouldn't be that uh, consequential. Okay, so out of six hundred uh, traditions of Abu Hurairah in Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, um, there's only eighteen that are questionable. Yeah, there's there's like a very small handful of traditions in Sahih that uh, the scholars of Hadith debate among themselves, and there's you know room for disagreement, um, and and not all you know. It's not that Al-Bukhari and Muslim were necessarily wrong in putting these hadiths. Sometimes Al-Bukhari and Muslim themselves hint at uh, some weakness in these traditions. Or sometimes Al-Bukhari and Muslims are not actually relying on these traditions per se. They're citing them as corroborating evidence. So the standard is a, li- a bit reduced with these kinds of traditions. So at the end of the day... So basically the, sh- uh, the shawahid. Shawahid, mutabaat. There's a few... Uh, things where the scholars disagree with Bukhari and Muslim on, but there's very few examples, right? That's not the majority of these uh, contested traditions. Um, so my conclusion, around uh, 582 confirmed authentic hadiths of Abu Hurairah in the Sahih. Okay, so now we know what's in the Sahih. How how many traditions does he have outside the Sahih? Well, there is a uh, eminent scholar uh, who died a few decades ago, uh, Sheikh Muqbil al-Wadi, he wrote a book um, compiling all of the authentic traditions outside the Sahih, right? And so his section on Abu Huraira lists around 217 additional authentic ahadith. Now, his his uh, list also includes repetitions. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it's just if it's typos. Some some ahadith are just reproduced in different sections. Um, and some, some of these traditions are actually in the Sahih. But mm. they just have very different forms, right? Um, and uh, some of them are contested, right? Some of them, uh, other hadith scholars would disagree. You know, these are not uh, they're not authentic per se. They're not too weak, right? They're not like at the weakest, lowest levels of weakness, but they're not, uh, they cannot be said to be authentic. So and there's room for disagreement on a lot of the hadith that he mentioned. What I concluded, and I, I, I studied this section of Abu several times, um, is that there are 67 additional authentic hadiths uh, outside the Sahih that Sheikh Muqbil compiled. Mm. Uh, and then I also found uh, one, um, hmm, maybe I'll, I'll incorporate that as well, so forget about that. So 67 authentic had, uh, traditions outside the Sahih. So in total, in total, Abu Huraira has around 649 traditions. That is a far cry from, you know, 5,000 plus a hadith. Absolutely. It's a much more modest number. Mm-hmm. Interesting, it's yeah. Much- so so it's uh, it's actually eight to nine times less than what it's made out to be. Yeah, and uh, this figure, you know, when you, when you uh, do similar exercises with other companions of the Prophet, like Aisha, mm. Anas, Abdullah bin Umar, mm. the disparity between Abu Hurairah and the rest of them is not that big. Right, like Abu has a hundred more traditions or two hundred more hadiths. It's not like uh, he has thousands of traditions, you know, more than Aisha or or, or Ibn Umar. They're actually very similar in volume, uh, relatively speaking. 
So total of 649 hadith. So what does that mean? How, how many hadith? You know, are they you know and, and, and you said that um, Abu Huraira lived on for 48 years um, yeah. after the Prophet So if we, you know, if we just do 649 divided by 48, that's 13 and a half. So pretty much like, you know, narrating an average of one hadith per month. That's not, yeah. so, that's not so radically, you know. You know, mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> we put yeah, it pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So in the prophet's life, right? Because critics like to like to say this. Well, he only knew the prophet for three years or four years. How could he have so many traditions? Well, uh, you know, let's take you up on that question. Um, the range of time the prophet the spent with the prophet uh, is three to four years, right? The more conservative estimate is three years. So I'll go by the more conservative estimate that's not as charitable. Mm, to yeah. so, so three lunar years is around 1,065 days. Mm. So if you were to divide 649 hadiths by 1,065 days. So Abu Huraira was hearing 0.6 hadiths per day, not even one hadith per day, mm. right? Or in whole numbers, when you round that, it's around, around three hadiths every five days. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's something that uh, little kids can memorize more, right? A little kid, you know, memorizing five hadiths a day, which is very doable, um, can end up, you know, achieving such a feat, you know, in th much more in, in three years or four years. And again, that is if we if we confine Abu Huraira's collection of hadiths to the Prophet's life, right? But obviously, um, as I said, Abu Huraira lived after the Prophet as well, right? And so... This argument that is brought up against Abu Huraira and his, his period of time with the Prophet, there's so many ways to tackle it. One of them is this, right? It's actually not as uh, yeah. striking or surprising. There's nothing odd about it. Yeah. But on the other end, something they also get wrong, which is that, you know, even though Abu Huraira accompanied the Prophet وسلم, for three to four years, that doesn't necessarily mean that his uh, compilation, of, his collection of traditions, you know, uh, was confined to that period. Abu Huraira also, you know, used to learn of hadith after the Prophet died, right? He learned from the senior companions of the Prophet. There are many examples of this. Uh, Abu Huraira, you know, narrating things from Umar and from other Sahaba. And, uh, you know, this was common knowledge in the early Muslim community. This is not a uh, controversial idea. So you have the uh, famous scholar, uh, student of the Tabi'in, uh, Ma'amar ibn Rashid said, most of Ibn Abbas's knowledge is from three. Umar ibn Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and Ubay ibn Ka'b, right? So what does that tell you? I mean, Ibn Abbas has experiences with the Prophet. We know them. He describes you know, a sleepover at the Prophet's house because his aunt was married to the Prophet as well, aside from the fact that he's the Prophet's cousin. So we know he has personal accounts. But Ibn Abbas also learned from other senior companions of the Prophet. So Abu Huraira's collection of traditions, as you said earlier, it might have, may have lasted another 10 years after the Prophet, or another 20, 30 years, right? It's likely not more than 20, uh, after, you know, probably until Uthman, maybe. And then after that is when he started becoming very independent, um, and the senior Sahaba started to die. But uh, nonetheless, he was not confined to three or four years in collecting hadith. And so what that's if, another... What if, what if someone says, Abdullah, that... Um... But at the end of the day, Abu Huraira is still relaying the hadith as if he heard the Prophet ﷺ say it himself directly. Or is it that from the 649 hadith, the Abu Huraira is mentioning a companion between himself and the Prophet ﷺ? Because you're talking about how he may have learned more ahadith 
from senior companions later on. So yeah. the counter argument yeah. would be, yeah, but then why didn't Abu Huraira mention that he got it from another companion? Instead okay, of so on that, um, you know, this is something where there's room for a lot of research. Um, it's difficult to, at least right now for me, to assess how many hadith Abu Huraira could have heard from other Sahaba, right? There are instances where he'll explicitly quote the Sahabi that uh, informed him, yeah. right? But sometimes it's just Abu Huraira from the Prophet. Yeah. Often, though, he does say that he heard things. I heard, or I was with the Prophet, or the Prophet told me, I asked the Prophet. Right? We, we went over several examples earlier in this presentation. Um, but this is something where there's room for research. And, um, you know... It, Sometimes the Sahaba would do this. It was pretty common. If they would hear something from the from a Sahabi, they may directly quote the Prophet. Yeah. So if said from a companion like him might yeah. be acceptable. Yeah. They don't always mention, uh, you know, the Sahaba from which they heard it. Um, this was well well known, you know, in the early generation of Muslims. And, uh, you know, even then, I don't think it's that uh, consequential. Because uh, even if it were the case that, you know, 99% of uh, Abu Huraira's traditions were from other companions, on one end, that kind of exonerates Abu Hurairah. Uh, oh. it, uh, it, it, it's not his fault now, per se. On the other end, he's actually pretty corroborated either way. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah we'll, 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 get, we'll touch on that later, inshallah. So, this is uh, on that note that we talked about. Um, we have some examples of Abu Hurairah relaying things from some companions. You have Abu Hurairah relaying something from Basra, Ibn Abi Basra. This companion of the Prophet. You have Abu Huraira relaying from Umar ibn Khattab, Abu Huraira relaying from Aisha. Right? You also have Abu Huraira relaying some personal opinions from some Sahaba, like Al Fadl ibn al Abbas in this famous incident in Sahih al Bukhari and Muslim. Um, you have Abu Huraira consulting with other Sahaba, like Abdullah ibn Salam, uh, the, the ex Jewish you know, rabbi who, who converted to Islam. It's, it's actually the hadith of Basra ibn Abi Basra. Abu Huraira is actually consult. He he hears things from different companions of the Prophet, and he consults with uh, Abdullah bin Salam as well. Um, so again, he has different sources aside from the Prophet, right? So, with what we know about Abu Huraira's hadith, you know, it has six forty nine hadith. Is Abu Huraira just exclusively relaying everything? Like what Abu Huraira says about the Prophet? Is it are, are these things that? We don't hear about anywhere else from any other companion of the Prophet. Or are the things that he's saying regularly attested to by other companions of the Sahaba independently? So that's what we'll touch on today, or in this section, rather. Um, obviously, uh, someone being corroborated regularly by independent sources, it is insightful. And it provides you a glimpse into that person's reliability at varying extents. But with that being said, and before I delve into the specifics and the statistics, it's important to know that some statistics can be deceiving or misleading. They're, they're too reductive. They, they don't actually accurately and comprehensively encompass you know, the, the nature of what's, what is being discussed. So what do I mean by that? Well, the question that should be asked before we address, you know, the earlier question is, should all hadiths be corroborated? So a companion of the Prophet, let's say, has 200 hadiths. Should we expect every hadith in those 200 to be corroborated by another companion? Often, you know, reducing a complex and organic process uh, like hadith and had hadith collection and hadith transmission to a single statistical figure 
it often bypasses key, key details and context that are needed to properly understand that process. So what do I mean by that? Um, some of Abu Huraira's hadiths involve private personal anecdotes involving him and the Messenger of Allah, like Abu Huraira's conversion story. Right, Abu Huraira has a conversion story where he met the Prophet and they had some exchanges, and Abu Huraira lost his slave, and then the Prophet, you know, presents his missing slave back to him. Um, you have Abu Huraira's his mother's conversion. You know, that's a story that uh, Abu Huraira relayed that involved the Prophet. You know, should you expect other companions of the Prophet to be narrating these very intimate, private, uh, you know, accounts? No, right. Um, and Abu Huraira has you know meals that he ate with the Prophet. Right, private moments with the prophet. It's wrong to ask, you know, if he's corroborated in these instances. It, it doesn't make sense. So statistically, you know, in these examples, it would like, oh, you have five hadiths where Abu Huraira is not corroborated, but that's misleading. You know, it's it doesn't really make sense per se. You shouldn't expect him to be corroborated in these hadiths, right? And. Um, you know, I'm not saying this as a, a cop out. You know, I'm not. There's nothing embarrassing. I'm going to hide later. We'll actually discuss the figures. But this is an important figure, not just for Abu Huraira, but for an important idea, not just for Abu Huraira, but for other companions of the Prophet. We shouldn't necessarily expect them to be corroborated in anything, in everything. Another aspect to this is that different companions of the Prophet had different interests, right? So Hudayf ibn Yaman, for example was very well known to be interested in fitan. And he is famously quoted saying, you know, the people used to ask the prophet about the good things. And I, I actually used to ask him about evil so that I could identify it and avoid it, right? So unsurprisingly, uh, companions like Hudayfa have a disproportionate, you know, amount of traditions on fitan, mm. right? When compared to other companions of the prophet, right? So someone like Hudayfa, who has this interest or specialization in fitan, naturally uh, may have things on fitan that other companions may not have, yeah. right? So the, the, it's incorrect to, to assume that the companions of the Prophet وسلم, they're all uniform in their interests yeah. and the types of ahadith they're going to be interested in, right? Point. What a female companion of the Prophet, you know, is going to ask the Prophet about issues related to her menses or issues related to, you know, rulings pertaining to women, you may not have you may not expect the men of the sahaba to have these traditions right there are, there are a lot of other factors that influence you know uh why someone may exclusively have a tradition and it's not always problematic right exclusive transmission of hadith is not always problematic as is implied often it may maybe the contrary you might even actually get suspicious <laughs> at times if yeah. you find attestations yeah. incident you know that should not even be there yeah Pretty much. So uh, exclusivity actually should be expected, as you said, at varying extents in organic transmission. And so reductive statistics may be misleading. Okay, so after that disclaimer, and after this important point, uh, how much is Abu Huraira corroborated in his uh, 649 hadith? Oh, sorry, I uh, forgot of a slide. Um, so on this note, let's go over an example of a hadith of Abu Huraira that is exclusive, quote-unquote, but is very understandable and very uh, normal. Um, it's a hadith uh, of Abu Huraira in Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, where he says, whoever gives a date's worth of charity from lawfully earned wealth 
for Allah only accepts that which is lawful, then Allah shall accept it with his right hand and then foster it as one of you would foster his colt, meaning a young horse, until it becomes like a mountain. Right? So Abu saying, the Prophet said, when you give charity, Allah keeps fostering that charity and uh, multiplying it uh, until you know a small chair until it becomes akin to a mountain in its size and volume. I wasn't able to find uh, you know a hadith from the Prophet relayed through another companion that had uh, similar wording or uh, you know this seems exclusive to Abu Hurairah at least in this form, right? But what he's saying is not alien uh, in Islamic alien to Islamic scripture. Right, this idea is, is established in the Quran. Allah says in the Quran, the parable of those who spend their wealth in God's way is that of a grain that produces seven spikes. In each spike is a hundred grains. God multiplies for whom he wills. God is bounteous and knowing. Right? And um, the uh, hadith of Abu Huraira actually uses the, the verb, you know, yurabbiha to describe Allah multiplying the, the sadaqah. And it's uh, very similar to the verb used in the, in the Quran on how Allah, you know, multiplies uh, the, the sadaqah and the reward uh, that's given, right? So even though this is an exclusive hadith per se, it has parallels in the Quran, right? So it would be misleading to say, well, this is something exclusively related by Abu Rira, therefore, you know, maybe we should we should uh, question it or, or look into it in more detail. You know, what, you know, what does it mean for something to be corroborated? Are we just looking at prophetic traditions, right? Are we looking at uh, uh, Quran as well, you know, to, to highlight uh, parallels? Are we also including the opinions of the Sahaba? Because often you'll find that <clears throat> Abu Huraira might exclusively narrate something. <laughs> but that thing that he's narrating is also recorded as an opinion of another Sahaba. Right? Another Sahabi. So that's insightful. You know, the other companion of the Prophet is not necessarily uh, relaying that opinion as a uh, prophetic tradition. But at least we know that what Abu Huraira is quoting from the Prophet here is being applied by other companions elsewhere. Right? So that's not a, a full corroboration per se, but it's insightful. Right? It, it does mean something. There is a degree of corroboration here. Um, and so there's a lot, a lot more room you know, for discussions on this and uh, alhamdulillah, either way, uh, it's it, it uh, sheds uh, positive light on uh, Abu Huraira. So, with all these disclaimers and all these discussions and, and the nuances that we want to introduce, um, the question is, how many hadith is Abu, Abu Huraira corroborated in? How many hadith does he exclusively narrate? You know, someone might think, oh, yeah, I'm embarrassed uh, of the figure and I'm trying to hide it. And that's why I'm introducing all these disclaimers. But to the contrary, Abu Huraira is actually very well corroborated. It's actually a lot more than I expected. Hmm. You know, um, out of 649 hadiths, I found that Abu Huraira was corroborated in 506 hadiths. Wow. So wow. that's almost 80% of everything he relayed from the Prophet is founded in other hadiths from other companions of the Prophet. He exclusively relays around 143 hadiths, plus 22% of his corpus. Abdullah, when you say uh, it's corroborated, uh, yeah. obviously you mean that it's corroborated in other authentic uh, hadith? Okay. Oh yeah, of course. Excellent. Um, excellent. I'll touch on. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a scholar, Liya uh, Rahman al-Azami, he wrote a, uh, a study on Abu Huraira, 
you know, with a selection of 1,336 hadiths of Abu Huraira. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not from his school per se, so I don't necessarily uh, agree with that figure on Abu Huraira's hadith, right? Mm-hmm. It includes many inauthentic traditions. But nonetheless, he arrived to the conclusion that out of 1,336 hadiths of Abu Huraira, uh, only 220 were exclusive to Abu Huraira, so 16.4%. Mm-hmm. But it's not too far from the figure that I have. Mm, mm. But he uh, more readily uses, you know, weak traditions and mm, uh, mm. things that are problematic, things that are unauthentic to Abu Huraira. But when you filter it all out, the figure yeah. ends up not too different either way, right? So I'm only citing authentic traditions here for, mm. in, in my figure. Mm. Um, I even excluded a lot of traditions from the Sahaba, like sayings of the Sahaba or fatwas of the Sahaba or mm. amal from mm. Sahaba that yeah. uh, confirms. So... I is very conservative. I'm not trying here to like inflate the figure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There is also like some weak traditions that actually have a, a good case for authenticity. Some even more mm-hmm. traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. You can make the case that they're independent of Abu Huraira's tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the number could be bigger, Yanni, if you want to be a bit more yeah. generous, but it's a more conservative mm-hmm. estimate. And uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's quite impressive. Right. People don't expect this, uh, you know, when they talk about Abu Huraira. And I didn't. I surely didn't expect it. Right. Okay. So now okay. we went over. And if, if I wanted to be play devil's advocate, Abdullah, you know, um, and represent the other side, would they be then be able to say, okay, fine, but the problems that we have with Abu Huraira concern narrations among the one hundred and forty-three. Would there still would there be a case there for them in that regard? Perhaps hmm. I'll, I'll entertain it. I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I know you're going to address uh, the misconceptions later, but um, but I mean, perhaps I mean, the, the way I look at it is that at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking at narrators, you know, um, uh, you know, you're able to identify whether they are problematic uh, or not, and, and scholars have detailed whether yeah. someone's memory de- deteriorated at a certain point in his life or whether someone became unreliable at a certain point in his life, or whether the person was the pure cut fabricator that you cannot trust at all. But it seems like I'm just from the statistic um, of an 80% corroboration. You know, the default rule, the default rule is, okay, this narrator looks solid. Um, Now, if there there are objections, you know, the burden of proof is going to lie on the person uh, making that claim. Yeah. Well, oh, of course, um, aside from that point, um, what we have presented today certainly does show uh, a noteworthy degree of reliability in Abu Huraira, right? Yeah. He's not like a, a forgetful old man who's making things up. Yeah, I think that's, you can definitely prove that, yeah. right? You can definitely prove that his retention, his, his recollection of these ahadiths is, is uh, reliable, sometimes yeah. remarkably, remarkably uh, reliable. Yeah. Right. And these statistics, it's its a cumulative case, right? I'm stacking all of these different uh, variables on top of each other. Yeah. And so at this point, someone wants to ask me about these 143 hadiths that Abu Huraira relays. I'm like, okay, but at least we can agree on what we mentioned earlier. We, we are going to approach these hadiths uh, now mm-hmm. with the conclusion that we're dealing with a reliable transmitter, right? Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with a nobody, this anonymous figure who exactly. just... Someone who was respected by Sahaba, someone who was respected by the major Tabi'een, someone who has a, you know, a near eighty percent corroboration rate. Uh, yeah. 
you know, so, you know, it's been established that this is a proper companion who spent, you know, yeah. a lot of time with the Prophet ﷺ, and you would also expect that the spiritual character and state of a person that spends that much time with the greatest human being ever created would also be at a certain spiritual state. Uh, so he's either going to be, you know, uh, either have a clear deficient human flaw, you know, a memory problem, or be, and, and the Prophet ﷺ knew who the Munafiqun were, so astaghfirullah, you know, we don't even want to inter- seriously entertain that idea absent any clear evidence. Um, and so therefore, we're going to have to start off with the fact that he is a solid narrator, unless there is yeah. a clear argument, which uh, I'm sure we'll you get know, to. And, and, and the thing is, I, I'm not trying to be a dogmatist here, right? Like mm. scholars of Hadith uh, recognize very well that companions of the Prophet uh, may make errors in their mm. transmission mm. rates. It's mm. not like controversial. Mm. Um, you know, a famous example is Ibn Abbas. Uh, um, and uh, Maymuna, right? When when did the Prophet marry Maymuna? Was he in a state of ihram? Ibn Abbas said he was. Yeah. Um, and a lot of scholars, uh, they consider that an error, right? So he was a young kid, and uh, yeah, and he may have misunderstood what was going on at that point. <clears throat> so the idea is open, right? I'm not trying to, to shut it down or run away from that possibility. Yeah. Um, it's just that uh, there's very little substantive evidence to demonstrate that. And in fact, you know, a lot of the hadith that are exclusive, sorry, a lot of the hadith that are problematized, they're not exclusively related by Abu Huraira. Yeah, that, that, that was one question. I, uh, that, I was going to patiently wait until, until we get to the misconceptions and ask you, okay, does this concern a narration among the 143 or is it a narration among the 506? So, um... Yeah, there, there's a lot, you know, I, if there is more time, like like a five hour session or something, we could like six hour session, we could go over like every example, right? But there is a lot of these problematized things um, against Abu Huraira that are not re- exclusively related by him. So it's a waste of time. The objection yeah. is, is yeah. It's not about yeah. Abu Huraira. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> or it's a dishonesty, you know, someone can misrepresent it and make it seem like it's exclusively related by Abu Huraira, but it's not. So these 143 traditions that Abu Huraira has uh, exclusively relayed, um, obviously not all of them are problematic per se. Yeah, uh, many of them are very normal, like uh, you know, wudu, fadail amal, describing the virtues of certain good deeds, um, uh, stories of prophets mm. here and there, mm. um, and there's a few of them that are made controversial. We'll, we'll touch on some of them, inshallah. Or we're not necessarily we'll touch on those specific hadiths, but we'll talk about the the greater idea behind them, inshallah. And I just want to commend you, uh, Abdullah, you know, so that, you know, just in front of our listeners here, that, that you've engaged in a very, um, uh, you know, tedious and difficult study here, uh, you know, uh, going through all these 649 hadith and trying to see how much were, were truly corroborated and uh and you know you didn't just blindly uh you know take the figure of uh you know uh, Sheikh Dia. and so I just want to commend you for this uh hard work for this primary work and uh this is a great service uh you know to to, to the ummah so jazakallah khair for that Allah is I mean uh, I thank you for your uh, graciousness this this presentation was supposed to happen like two months ago but I kept asking for extensions you know? no, I, I underestimated how much work it, it would need you know and uh, no, no 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 this is brilliant this is brilliant and uh you know uh, just for your efforts uh I mean I'm sure this was not an, an easy easy task and 
may Allah reward you for it. Amin, amin, uh, and you as well, inshallah. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, that's when it comes to, you know, some reasons. This is not everything, of course, on Abu Rirab. These are some reasons why he's reliable. Some factors that explain why he became who he is. Uh, some figures, important figures that you should know. So, now that we have that uh, addressed, let's touch on some of the controversies or perceived controversies uh, regarding Abu Rirab that are cited to undermine his reliability. So um, being a, a, a such a prolific transmitter and a, such a fundamental pillar of the, the Hadith corpus as a whole, Abu Huraira is often made to wear different hats depending on its critics' backgrounds, right? Uh, so Shi'i critics accuse Abu Huraira of being a pro-Umayyad, Nasibi forger. So they... they Shiri satire presents Abu Huraira as this uh, pro-Umiyyad hadith factory who hated Ahlul Bayt and uh, sought to undermine the interests of Ali ibn Abi Talib and bolster the interests of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. So that, that's the, the, the satire, uh, the satirical image that you get of Abu Huraira in Shiri uh, literature. The Jahmites accused Abu Huraira of being a rabid anthropomorphist forger, right? Uh, radical feminists today accuse him of being a misogynist forger. So he's wearing different hats depending on his uh, critics' background, right? And then today there's a lot of intersectionality between these different uh, polemics. So, you know, in the, in the oddest of scenarios, you can have a, a Shi'i feminist who cites all of these three uh, polemics against Abu Hurairah. Alhamdulillah, I'm yet to come across that, but I've seen uh, intersectionality between, you know, some of these uh, factors. A lot of them. Okay, so... We'll start with one of the controversies that, that are regularly cited, uh, which is Umar's quote-unquote hadith ban and Umar's relationship with Abu Huraira with respect to hadith. This is something that is very misrepresented and uh, is not as problematic as people make it seem. So people who like to criticize Abu Huraira present a few traditions where uh, Umar uh, threatens Abu Huraira to not narrate hadith or warns him against uh, narrating many hadiths and just exercises a lot of sternness when it comes to Abu Huraira and hadith. Now, what people fail to recognize, uh, you know, looking back and looking at the bigger context, is that Umar's general attitude with hadith, with almost every companion of the Prophet, was extreme cautiousness and scrupulousness. And so it's inaccurate to confine this to Abu Huraira. It really is not about Abu Huraira. It's more about Umar than it is about Abu Huraira. Because there are similar examples uh, where Umar like shuns certain companions of the Prophet or or uh, pressures them to not narrate certain hadith. And some of these are, are well-known companions. Um, obviously, you have one example during the Prophet's life. And I think it's an important example we'll, we'll go through. You have an example of Umar and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. You have an example with Umar and Ammar ibn Yasir, right? So a lot of the Shia who love to cite uh, this uh, controversy, per se, uh, against Abu Huraira, fail to recognize that um, there's also an example of it involving Ammar ibn Yasir. And Ammar is uh, revered, you know, in, uh, in Shiaism. So should we cast doubts on the reliability of Ammar? You know, what does it mean? What, what does Ammar's attitude really entail? You know, that's inshallah what I'll uh, highlight today. So during the Prophet's life, we actually get a glimpse in this attitude of Umar. Uh, there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim where the Messenger of Allah gives Abu Huraira his sandals and says to Abu Huraira, whoever you meet behind this wall, 
who bears witness that there is no deity of worth, worship except Allah, with certainty from his heart, then give him the glad tiding of Jannah. So Abu Huraira takes the Prophet's sandals and encounters Umar al-Khattab. So Abu Huraira tells Umar what the Prophet had told him, and Umar strikes Abu Huraira. Um, I don't recall if it was a punch or like a shove, but he struck him really hard on his chest that Abu Huraira fell. He fell on the ground and started crying. Right? And so he went back to the Prophet crying that Umar had hit him. And, uh, you know, later Umar com comes to the Prophet and he says, Oh, Messenger of Allah, did you did you tell Abu, did you give Abu Huraira your slippers and tell him to uh, say this to anyone behind the wall? And the Prophet confirms, right? The Prophet verifies that he said that. And then Umar tells the Prophet, don't, don't say that. You know, don't, don't share this to the people because I fear that they're going to le become lenient, you know, and, and uh, out of this idea that they will enter Jannah for Tawheed, they'll stop, you know, doing good deeds. That's essentially his concern. So I've ironically even seen people cite this hadith, some Shias cite this hadith to argue for Abu Huraira's reliability. Although everything about it in reality is a testimony to his reliability, right? The Prophet uses him as a messenger to deliver a message. Uh, the Prophet later confirms that message, right? So it's actually, uh, it, it, there's only, it's, it's a good hadith in favor of Abu Huraira. But nonetheless, Umar, do you see his reaction with Abu Huraira? How his immediate response is uh, extreme caution uh, and aggression. Right, this is a very sensitive thing to him, hadith, and the prophet being miscoded or the prophet being misused, right? And so we get a better understanding of his motive even later at the end of the hadith when we realize it's not just about his concerns for authenticity. That's not just the only thing that motivates Umar, you know, to to be very harsh on hadith transmitters from the Sahaba, but it's also his fear that the hadith could be misused. Right? Uh, and this I, is thing I mean, when I read this incident i think it's more about the latter than the former mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't yeah, appear yeah. to me that you know umar who is doubting mm -hmm. abu Huraira's often you know yeah. uh, sincerity and honesty but it seems like he may have assumed okay fine abu Huraira, you do know this hadith but do you have the authority to narrate it like this to yeah. people you know and that's what and it seems like that's what umar wanted to verify from the process so like did you uh, authorized Abu Huraira to disseminate it in this fashion, rather than, you know, did you actually utter this statement, so to speak? So it doesn't yeah, seem like Abu Huraira's, uh, you know, trustworthiness is being uh, questioned by Umar Yeah, that may be the case. From my, from my, just from my reading of this incident. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's other examples, inshallah, I'm going to present that, uh, you know, can further contextualize it. And obviously now, we're trying to understand this hadith ban of Umar and, you know, what are its extents, and what does it entail? So there's another example, um, you know, in Islamic history between Abu Musa and Umar. In Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, Umar once summoned Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. And so Abu Musa went and knocked on the door thrice uh, without hearing a response. And so he departed. He left the house. Later, Umar confronts Abu Musa and asks him why he left. And Abu Musa told, tell, tells him of, of the prophetic tradition on that, right? If you knock three times and ask for permission and you don't get a response, eventually you should leave. And in response to that, Umar threatens Abu Musa. He actually threatens him. He threatens him and demands that Abu Musa bring another witness who could attest to that hadith veracity or he would beat him up or hurt him. 
right? So again, you see a glimpse into Umar's uh, personality and attitude when it comes to hadith. And so Abu Musa comes to the to a gathering of the Ansar, you know, scared. They see him scared. And uh, another companion of the Prophet goes with him, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. They go back to Umar and Abu Sa'id confirms. He said, yes, I heard this too uh, from the Messenger of Allah. Right? So again, you know, we see this attitude with Umar. It's not uh, exclusive to Abu Hurairah. And uh, again, it's more reflective of Umar's personality and his, his scrupulousness than it really reflects, you know, anything about the other companions that they're unreliable or anything like that. So there's another example um, between uh, Ammar bin Yasir and Umar bin Khattab. So a man once came to Umar and said, I was in a state of Janaba and I did not find any water. So Umar told him, don't pray. Ammar bin Yasir then said, oh, commander of the faithful, do you not remember when you and I were in a regiment? You and I were in a regiment and we entered a state of Janaba and we did not find any water. You did not pray, but I rolled in the dirt and then prayed. The Prophet then said, it would have been sufficient for you to strike the ground with your hands and then to blow and then to wipe your face and your hands. Umar replied, fear Allah, O Ammar. Ammar then said, if you wish, I will not narrate this hadith. In Sahih Muslim. So what is going on over here? Ammar um, bin Yasir is narrating a rukhsa, right? A, lenient, a leniency or a lenient rule provided by uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And Umar was cautious that it would be misused, right? It's not that he's doubting Ammar per se. He's, he's concerned that it could be misused by people who end up doing tayammum uh, when it's not warranted, right? And this sentiment actually exists among other companions of the Prophet. Like Ibn Mas'ud actually is quoted saying, uh, on on uh, tayammum, you know, we fear that soon if the water gets cold, people start doing tayammum, which is invalid, right? So this is a, a concern uh, some companions had. So again, you see Umar with Ammar bin Yasir. Umar is, is uh, does not want Ammar to casually narrate this hadith, you know, to people and, you know, out of fear that it will be misunderstood or misused. And, uh, there's so many other examples of, of this uh, phenomenon with Umar, not just with hadith, but with like the amal of certain sahaba. So there was a sahabi, uh, if I recall correctly, it's in the Mutta. Um, you know, he's engaging in a rukhsa when it comes to ihram and Umar sees him and Umar rebukes him, right? And he says, you are you are followed by the people. You can't uh, do things that could be mis misinterpreted, right? Uh, and people end up following you in, in, uh, incorrectly. So again, um, it's to properly contextualize this hadith ban of Umar and to, to show that it's not really confined to Abu Huraira per se. Um, in fact, um, we have good reasons to believe Abu Umar, you know, trusted Abu Huraira. Um, it's reported in historical sources that Umar was actually sent on uh, administrative missions. Sorry, Abu Huraira was sent on administrative missions to Bahrain by Umar. Uh, different sources uh, mention different duties, right? Some sources mention Mu'addin. Some sources mention that he was a zakat collector. Some sources mention that he was a judge. So there's some disparities in, in the role, but there's general agreement that he was sent by Umar. He certainly was sent by Umar. There's authentic traditions on that. And uh, Al-Waqidi even says that uh, he eventually was uh, Umar's governor in Bahrain. So right. So how how could Omar appoint someone he did not trust as his own governor in a whole region, a distant region, right? Uh, Abu Huraira also used to carry letters 
from Umar's officials in Bahrain back to Medina. Right, so these are important exchanges, government exchanges. They may be confidential. Right, so there's obviously a degree of trust between uh, Abu Hurairah and Umar for something like this to take place. In fact, in a weaker tradition, it's not too weak. It's a hadith of uh, Muhammad bin Amr bin Alqama from Abu Salama from Abu Hurairah. It's not the best of isnads, unfortunately, but um, it's not too weak either, inshallah. Yani. Um, it presents Abu Hurairah transporting the collected zakah money from Bahrain to, to Medina. So that's a lot. And in the hadith, it's it's clearly a lot of money because Umar himself is presented being like amazed at how much money was collected. Um, so again, there is a good degree of trust between Abu Hurairah and Umar. And there's other examples, you know. Uh, there's an example, go back to it. Um, Umar, uh, on some instances, asked the companions of the Prophet if there were any hadith on, on a certain subject he was uh, interested in. And Abu Hurairah would approach Umar and share the hadith with him. Right? It's not like Abu Hurairah was shunned. No, you're not allowed to narrate hadith. He, he was given uh, the floor before Umar and he, he narrated a hadith and Umar, you know, listened to him. Okay, so that's uh, some brief points on Umar's hadith ban, quote-unquote. Now, another controversy or another polemic that is made against Abu Rira is, is one that involves him and uh, Ka'b al-Ahbar and the Israeliyat. So who is Ka'b al-Ahbar? So Ka'b al-Ahbar is this uh, Jewish or ex-Jewish rabbi who converted to Islam during Umar's reign. So he's a tabi'i. Um, senior Tabi. Um, following his conversion, he often used to share things from the Torah and Jewish sources to the Sahaba and the Tabi'in. And some companions, such as Ibn Abbas, Abu Huraira, and even Umar ibn al Khattab, found some of the things he shared insightful. You know, and, and people blow this out of proportion. And, and, and I feel like there's a lot of uh, some anti Semitism yani, involved in this, even though that term may be misused in a lot of contexts, but people blow it, blow, really blow it out of proportion. I mean, uh, a way to understand this is if we today, if, if, if the, one of the greatest Jewish rabbis converts to Islam today, right? I think all of us, many Muslims would be fascinated by that and they'd be very interested in, in asking this person, you know, why did you convert? Uh, is there anything from the Torah? Right, anything from the Talmud, maybe that you observe on the Prophet, anything anywhere, right? He might narrate people, and people will find that insightful, right? People will share it. People could teach it and tell their kids about it. Like, it's not as uh, sinister as people make it seem, right? It's a he's an interesting convert from Judaism who's a scholar, right? So, in these polemics that uh, criticize Abu Hurairah. His Abu Hurairah's relationship with Kaab al-Ahbar is misrepresented, right? So people essentially, the idea that is uh, peddled forth in this polemic is that Abu Hurairah was mindlessly taking Kaab's Jewish traditions and recirculating them among the Muslims as prophetic traditions. So he's repackaging them and uh, labeling them as prophetic traditions. And then they were being blindly followed within the Muslim community that was being misguided by Abu Hurairah and Kaab al-Ahbar. But this... This this take or this this uh, narrative fundamentally misrepresents Abu Huraira's relationship with Kaab al Ahbar. Um, you know, in it, Abu Huraira is presented uh, as this. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, yeah. who who leveled this? Was it the Kufans, the Shias, or the Jahmi, the Mu'tazila? Wallahi, today it's leveled by almost everyone, hmm. right? Okay. Um, hadith rejectors. Well, is, is this a Shia. is this a new is this a new argument, or did it was it? 
that it exists back in the day? I'm not I'm not too familiar of old polemics using it uh -huh. because okay. Abel Ahbar is also cited in uh, Shia sources, right? Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, you know, he's, he's just that the type of person who has a lot of quotes circulating in his name. Um, sure. There may have been some quotes uh, related to Abu Huraira and Kaab that may have been cited by some uh, Jahmis to undermine the reliability of Hadith, but it wasn't per se. Uh, a shtick on Abu Huraira oh. 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 right um, it was not exclusive to Abu Huraira his relationship with Kaab al-Ahbar but this is a, a more modern thing this yeah. is my perception of it okay. sure. um, yeah. so in this narrative Abu Huraira is presented as this fickle disciple of Kaab who effortless, effortlessly used to believe and disseminate everything Kaab told him right that's that's the the image you end up getting from this narrative mm -hmm. And the supposed relationship, as I said earlier, is is alleged to be the source of an influx of Israeliyat that infiltrated Islam and disguised as Hadith. Mm. Now, when it comes to Abu Huraira and Kaab, you know, to give an accurate historical image of what actually happened, there are several important points that we should note. One, Abu Huraira in reality cannot be described as a student of Kaab, per se. And it's evident that Abu Huraira actually used to challenge some of the things that Kaab would share. Two, Abu Huraira himself used to share prophetic traditions with Kaab, right? So the influence is not just one way. Um, Kaab was also influenced by Abu Huraira and other companions of the Prophet. What does that mean? It means that some sayings of Kaab that we may find in, in our sources may actually originate from the Prophet. Right? Because he was also influenced by Islam and by the Sahaba. Point three, Kaab was often open to changing his positions and beliefs, depending on what Abu Huraira and other companions taught him. Again, this uh, highlights the nature of this relationship. It's not like Kaab was this, uh, you know, a teacher and everyone used to sit before him and just, you know, write, take notes and take everything and not, never challenge him. Rather, not only would they challenge him, but he would modify his own understanding of the Torah based on what the Sahaba told him, right? And we'll get to examples on that. Uh, point number four, Kaab's role and insights were often limited to a few subjects that do not encompass the entirety of Abu Huraira's corpus. So what do I mean by that? Um, when you look at Kaab, his legacy, and the traditions he was talking about, there you notice a trend. There's actually a few specific topics that his reports regularly revolve around. He talks a lot about, he talks about fitan, right? Eschatology, end of times, these fitan that happened at the end of times. He talks about, you know, the day of judgment, uh, the day of judgment, the, 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 the severity of the day of judgment. He talks about details about past prophets, right? Um, that's a lot of what his legacy revolves around. Now, Abu Huraira's uh, hadith corpus is much more encompassing than that. It's not confined to these things. Mm. Um, Abu Huraira talks a lot about fiqh, uh, a lot. If not the majority of his corpus is about ahkam, right? It's not like uh, everything uh, you know, Abu Huraira relays is reflected in Kaab al-Ahbar's legacy. No, um, they, they, they do not always, they don't overlap. That's what I'm trying to say, essentially. Uh, Kaab is mostly confined to a set of topics, while Abu Huraira's hadith is much more, you know, comprehensive 
um, than what Kaab al-Ahbar has to offer. So it clearly is not entirely originating from Kaab, and and none of it actually originates from Kaab, right? But I'm even taking it to the to the worst possible any extreme or conclusion. Uh, only a tiny portion could of of what it does legacy could be said to originate from Kaab, even though I believe none of it does. Okay, another observation uh, pertaining to Kaab. Um, it's important to recognize that Kaab used to frequently highlight parallels between Islamic scripture and Jewish scripture. That could be because the Sahaba himself would ask him to do that, like about certain examples. Or it could be that uh, he, he was interested in that as well at some instances. And so what he would do is he would often provide biblical commentary and exposition to Islamic texts. And he would be asked about things in the Quran and Hadith. So for this reason, aside from the previous points that I mentioned, it shouldn't be a surprise to observe some similarities and parallels between uh, Kaab's traditions and some Hadith related by the Sahaba. Right? Because naturally there is this confounding variable that is uh, influencing what Kaab is narrating. If Kaab is um, you know, more inclined to highlight instances of similarities or overlap between the Torah and you know scripture and hadith, naturally you're going to observe similarities. It doesn't mean that the hadiths were taken from Kaab, right? It it doesn't mean they originate from him. Rather, that uh, he is simply uh, filtering out those instances from the Torah and sharing that sharing it with the Muslims, right? So, in reality, observing similar similarities between Kaab and uh, Kaab's hadith or Kaab's traditions and Abu Hurairah's hadith may not mean much in reality. Um, it may not be as, uh, you know, uh, decisive as some of the critics make it seem. You know, yes, you might find some hadiths that Abu Huraira relates that are very similar to things that Kaab said. It could be that Kaab actually is relaying what he heard from Abu Huraira. He's influenced by Abu Huraira. It could be that Kaab is observing, is highlighting a parallel, you know, in Jewish oral tradition or in the in the Torah, that's similar to what the Sahaba related. There's so many possibilities that should be considered. And uh, I'm going to go over some examples, inshallah, of that just to demonstrate it. But I'm just going over the main uh, points for now the method, regarding the methodology. So there are other methodolo methodological flaws that are associated with these polemics involving Abu Hurairah and Kaab. One of them is that Many of the traditions ascribed to Kabul Ahbar are actually inauthentic. And what is authentic to him is relatively sparse compared to a lot of figures, right? Um, a lot of these traditions of Kaab on the Fitan and the stories, they're, they're from these obscure Syrian uh, sources, all disconnected snads that you'll find in books like uh, Kitab al-Fitan of, of, of uh, Nu'aym ibn Hammad, right? So obviously, if you want to make the argument that uh, Kaab is influencing uh, the Sahaba, if the, the actual tradition from Kaab is inauthentic in the first place, that's a problem, right? That's uh, that's uh, it's an inconsistency. You're assuming the Hadith is uh, authentic, right? And uh, on that basis, you use it to undermine the, the Sahaba's Hadith. But once again, um, this is pretty common. And so... When someone quotes Kaab al-Ahbar, you actually should go back to verify. There's a lot of inauthentic quotes attributed to him. Um, another potential methodological flaw, and this one is is not as significant, but I've come across one example, and that's enough for me to 
to be a little worried when I hear a cab being coded, which is that there is another companion of the Prophet. So Kaab is not a companion, he's a tabi, but there's actually a companion of the Prophet named Kaab ibn Ujra. And uh, Abu Huraira is actually coded reporting things from Kaab ibn Ujra too. So there's two Kaabs that uh, Abu Huraira, you know, was was potentially influenced by, yeah. right? And uh, sometimes, often in the Hadith, it's just they 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 quote Kaab. They don't mention who, Kaab al Habar, Kaab ibn Ujra, yeah. right? So there is room for uh, conflation to take place. And I actually came across one example. So that's why I point this out, yeah. even though it, it may not be as common, but it's yeah. something to keep in mind. Yeah. So now we'll go over some examples of uh, traditions from Kaab al-Ahbar um, that uh, demonstrate some of the points that I mentioned earlier, inshallah. So uh, Abu Huraira once said to Kaab al-Ahbar, the Prophet of Allah once said, every Prophet is granted a dua to make. And I wish, inshallah, to keep my dua for their intercession for my nation on the day of resurrection. Kaab thus told Abu Huraira, Did you hear that from the Messenger of Allah? Abu Huraira said yes. And this hadith in Sahih Muslim. So this is an example of Abu Huraira influencing Kaab. Exactly. Right? He's he's sharing prophetic traditions with him uh, that are shaping his uh, you know perception of Islam, but maybe also influencing his interpretation of the Torah as well. Yeah, right? When he, when he but you can't call yeah, you can't call Abu Huraira than a blind disciple of yeah, so retrospectively, these things may also influence uh, Kaab's interpretation of the Torah after his conversion when he acquires them. Another example, this is a very nice example. It's too long, so I'm going to actually just uh, share bullet points from it. Yeah. It's this long tradition in the Mutta of Imam Malik um, where Abu Huraira encounters Kaab al-Ahbar at uh, Mount Sinai. And uh, Abu Huraira proceeds to share prophetic traditions with Kaab. So again, that's similar to the earlier hadith. Abu Huraira sharing a hadith with him. And Kaab shared with Abu Huraira things from the Torah. But then Abu Huraira shares a hadith with Kaab on uh, a dua being accepted every Friday. Right? Every every day in the week, there is a day in, there is a day in the week where dua is accepted, and it's Friday. Uh, Kaab shares that, sorry, Abu Huraira shares that with Kaab, and Kaab objects. Kaab says, no, the Torah says it's once a year. It's not once a week. Hmm. And Abu Huraira stands his ground and he says, uh, no, it's actually every Friday. The report says Kaab, you know, re-examined the Torah. He looked into it and then he said, uh, uh, subhanAllah, the Arabic is actually here. Kaab read the Torah. He like re-examined his source and he said, Salaqa Rasulullah. The Prophet has said the truth, right? So again, Kaab objects to a hadith Abu Huraira stands his ground, and then Kaab eventually changes his position, right? Later, Kaab re-examines the Torah and modifies his position. Um, later in the Hadith, Abu Huraira goes back to Abdullah bin Salam, who's an ex-Jewish Sahabi, who used to be a rabbi. He's more of an authority than Kaab, right? And Abu Huraira refers to Abdullah bin Salam, and Abdullah bin Salam confirms what Abu Huraira says. And he mm. said Kaab was wrong. He maybe mis maybe he misinterpreted the Torah or misunderstood it or had a bad copy or something. I don't know what, what the possibilities are. But this example highlights that um, Abu Huraira was uh, open to challenging Kaab and and uh, his hadith. You know what Abu Huraira had from the Prophet prevailed. Over you know Kaab's scripture, this, the past scripture that he had, and Abu Huraira viewed it to be superior to it and more of an authority than his uh, scriptures, right? The Torah. Mm. 
I heard it from the prophet. It does not matter what you are coding to me. Eventually, the man changes position. Here's another example. Um, Kaab is consulted on the interpretation of a verse in Surah Al-Kahf, following a dispute between some companions on the interpretation of that verse. Um, and Kaab essentially proceeds to cite a similar passage from the Torah, right? And what I mean to show in this example is that, again, Kaab is often involved in discussions revolving around the Quran and the Hadith. So naturally, the things that he's going to quote from the Torah and the oral tradition of, of Jewish scholarship will resemble what exists in, in Muslim scripture to an extent, either Hadith or Quran. So you observing a parallel does not necessarily mean that it's taken from Kaab. Again, there are other potential confounding variables that influence how these things work. Hmm. Here's another example. This is a good example. Uh, Kaab al-Ahbar once told Ibn Fatik, the most severe, this is, so this is Kaab al-Ahbar talking. He said, the most severe of Arab tribes against the Dajjal are your people, referring to the tribe of Banu Tamim. And this is in the Musallaf of Ibn Shaybat, an authentic tradition. This saying of Kaab, is most likely based off a prophetic tradition relayed by Abu Huraira found in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim on the tribe of Bani Tamim. Uh -huh. Right? Um, Abu Huraira spoke about this. He said that they're the, the Prophet said they're the most severe people against the Dajjal. Now, I mean, as a reflection, I mean, this, this sounds more like a prophetic tradition than a Jewish tradition. You know, the Arab tribe of Banu Tamim. Yeah. I don't call any, you know, mention of them in the Torah or any connections with the Dajjal, mm. mm. right? So this is an instance where Abu Huraira, uh, sorry, where Kaab was actually influenced by Abu Huraira, yeah. and you see him disseminating a tradition. Now, 1,500 years later, a fool may come and say, look, this is the same uh, hadith as Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira took this from Kaab. Mm. It's, uh, it's a very uh, narrow, you know, yeah. very superficial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's another example. This is also a nice example in the Mutta of Malik. Uh, the Tabi'i, Ata ibn Yasar, he's a knowledgeable Tabi'i. He says, I asked Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As and Ka'b al-Ahbar about a man who is unsure if he made three or four rakahs in his prayer. So he was he's praying, you know, uh, a Luhur prayer, for example, and he's unsure, did he pray three or four? They both replied, Ka'b al-Ahbar and Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As let him add another rak'ah, and then he should make two sajdas well when he's sitting. Sujood is sahu, right? If you're unsure about the rak'at, if you think you did less, you add one, and then you do sujood sahu at the end of the salah. And, and what I mean to show in this example is uh, Kaab is not as Jewish as people make him seem, right? It's true that he obviously had this uh, legacy you know, from his old faith, and he was knowledgeable in it, and he found it insightful, and he would quote it that sometimes. But he's also very Muslim, right? He learned fiqh. Where did he learn the rulings of Sujud al-Sahu from? He learned it from the Sahaba, maybe even from Abu Huraira himself, right? Uh, so people, um, you know, underestimate how Muslim he is. There's another tradition where Kaab talks about tasbih, you know, in gatherings. You, you, you get another glimpse uh, into his life 
that's that's very far from this uh, anti-Semitic trope of this uh, Jewish rabbi concealing his faith to distort Islam and trick the Sahaba, you know. So this is a nice example where you see him being a, a clear influence of the Sahaba on him, and uh, and he he disseminates that. Now, when we see Kaab teaching people sujud sahu, uh, could someone then say, well, that means sujud sahu is actually taken from the Talmud and yeah. and then spread among the Sahab? It's preposterous at one point. Okay, this is an example of uh, one of the issues I talked earlier where Kaab ibn Ujra and Kaab al-Ahbab could be conflated. Right? This is the same tradition. An Abi Huraira and the Kaab al-Ahbab qal. And here it's An Abi Huraira qala qala li Kaab ibn Ujra. Right? So Abu Huraira relaying from two different Kaabs, the same hadith, there's something wrong. Right? It may be the case in this instance that the report with Kaab al-Ahbar is actually more reliable, right? But what, I, what I'm trying to show in this example is that we should verify if a Kaab is mm. ambiguously coded, there is a chance it's not Kaab al-Ahbar, mm. right? Uh, even when it comes to Abu Huraira and Kaab, it may not be Kaab al-Ahbar. Mm. So this requires some precaution. Okay, so this is an important point as well. There's a speaker or some speakers who talk about uh, you know cross contamination this this uh, this word with scary connotations cross contamination of hadith with Abu with Abu Rira with Kaab al Ahbab and in reality this issue is blown out of proportion and very misunderstood. There's actually a, it's a great report. You know ironically it's used by people to to undermine Abu Rira's hadith, but it's actually contrary. I actually find it very insightful. Uh, in Kitab al Tamiz of Imam Muslim. Busur ibn Sa'id said, I have seen us sitting with Abu Huraira in, in a gathering. And Abu Huraira would relate to us from the Messenger of Allah and from Kaab. So he's relaying to them some, some hadith, some sayings of Kaab, okay, in this gathering. And then Abu Huraira would leave. I would then hear some of those who were with us make the Prophet's hadith from Kaab and Kaab's hadith from the Prophet. So they, some of the people sitting in the gathering would end up mix and matching the, the traditions of Abu Huraira. They would make them, uh, the hadith, they would make them sayings of Kaab. And the sayings of Kaab would be erroneously presented as prophetic traditions. Okay. What does this quote really prove, though? One, it shows that the competent and reliable transmitters, uh, including the reliable of Abu Huraira's compa companions, they were able to distinguish between Kaab's traditions and Abu Huraira's traditions, right? So this shows someone like Busar ibn Sa'id, for example, he has good bapt, he has good retention. And he was able to notice people making mistakes, right? So there were people who properly retained, you know, uh, information and properly presented its sources. And then there are less meticulous transmitters who, who make these kinds of mistakes. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just saying that some people made this mistake. It's not saying, you know, and it was forever confused and we were never able yeah. to settle this i mean that's it so it shows that uh it's a, it's an indicator of the depth of abu Huraira's companions mm. in reality that they're precision yes mm. reliable ones are able to distinguish right it's only the weak the weak and the unreliable that end up doing these errors but another important point in this hadith that people overlook very conveniently by the way is that this cross-contamination goes both ways in the in the report 
So when people talk about uh, cross-contamination, they say, well, uh, traditions of Kaab are being inserted into uh, hadith and they're being repackaged as prophetic traditions. That surely happened with like unreliable sources that are not meticulous. They did that. But it also happened with Kaab's legacy, right? The, the report says that prophetic traditions of Abu Huraira, these weak transmitters took them and inaccurately relayed them as sayings of Kaab. What does that mean? It means that just like these critics and polemicists have this worry that, uh, you know, when they see, when they observe a tradition of Abu Huraira, they have this like insecurity that it could be something actually originally from Kaab. They should feel the same thing when they see traditions from Kaab. If you see a tradition from Kaab, Al-Ahbar, you should also, based on this tradition, think that, okay, could this have been a prophetic tradition that was uh, uh, incorrectly repackaged as a tradition of Kaab? Because that's also an equal uh, possibility, right? So a lot of these uh, appeals and, and polemics, they're actually inconsistent. They're inconsistent in the way they use these traditions. And they're inconsistent in, in the implications they choose uh, to cite when it comes to Hadith and Abu Huraira. It's always the implications yeah. that are not favorable towards Abu Huraira's Hadith that are, that are brought up, even though it's just as possible, you know, the other way around. Did several other companions narrate from uh, Kaab? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I well, mentioned it, it, it. So it's not that the companions had a problem with Kaab? Uh, no, no, no. I mentioned uh, earlier. Let me see where. So Ibn Abbas, uh, you know, mm. reported from Kaab yeah. a lot as well. Mm. Um, you can even have Umar right? Yeah. There's reports of Umar al-Khattab, uh, you know, uh, Kaab uh, telling the, uh, the Umar about the Day of Judgment. He's giving them like a very detailed account and the sahaba were like all in awe from his account right so people found what he had to share insightful i mean and this is not like controversial i mean we as muslims when we look at the torah for example we don't believe it's a useless document right um sure there are things that we're not sure about there are things that may be questionable but certainly the torah not only is uh can be an inspiring text right and an, an inspired text as well but it also has history, important history, right? It has important historical details that we might use, right, to understand, get a better understanding of the past. And, and it's the same with the Sahaba, right? What are they talking to Kaab about? They're asking about past prophets, details about, you know, different things from the past nations, interpretation of some things relating to prophets mostly. Yeah, uh, the, you know, uh, the contemporary uh, Quranic sciences scholar, Dr. Musa'ad al-Tayyar, has very insightful works uh, you know, discussing the the utilization of Israeliyat reports in tafsir, even by the you know, even by the Salaf, and this is an established practice, especially among the the earliest of the Quranic commentators. So this is not controversial at all to benefit from the utilization of these sorts of reports and uh, in tr trying to contextualize. And obviously, we don't take any core aspects of the Deen, you know, from these sources. So. Uh, yeah, it's hardly hardly controversial in the grand scheme of things. And as I said earlier, um, I, I didn't say this. I'm glad you mentioned this, actually. Um, the I, the whole term, Israeliyat, you know, I feel like uh, a lot of the people who misuse it, you know, to undermine Hadith and, and criticize Abu Huraira, they actually don't have a good definition of what the Israeliyat are. Like, how, how do you describe something as an Israeli tradition, right? Is it like a story of a past prophet? I mean, that's not, uh, a, 
that's not a sufficient uh, definition, right? You have hadith, you have Quranic accounts of past prophets. It's inevitable that the prophet spoke about other prophets, right? Um, you know, what, what is the dhabit, right? What is the uh, the criteria used to define something as Israeliyat as opposed to valid hadith, yeah. right? I feel like this is something also that's, uh, you know, uh, overlooked and not uh, you know reflected on when it should be in this context i mean abu huraira's uh, corpus right the 649 traditions that we mentioned a small fraction a tiny fraction of it like involves prophets and past nations a tiny fraction right so this idea of abu huraira israeliyat like yeah. it's not it's not the case it's yeah. not the case blown out of proportion uh, yeah, and even then, Abu Huraira relaying uh, stories of prophets. I mean, that's not necessarily Israeliyat anyways, as we, we stated earlier, right? Um, so there's a lot of things to say here, right? Uh, we could we could have a whole lecture on this issue alone, Yanni. Yeah. But uh, we'll move on, inshallah, to the next point. So one of the other controversies that, uh, or one of the, the other major polemics against Abu Huraira is uh, Shi'i satire, right? Um, contemporary and past Shi'i polemics often present Abu Huraira as an anti-Ahlul Bayt, pro-Umayyad hadith factory, who forged hadiths to bolster Umayyad interests. However, Abu Huraira neither was an Asabi nor was he aligned with the Umayyads against the Alids. Additionally, Abu Huraira neither participated in the Battle of Al-Jamal nor Sufin. So, you know, a fundamental uh, element of this Shi'i satire and uh, the Shi'i polemics against Abu Huraira is that they attempt to malign him and uh, present him as uh, an Umayyad partisan, right? They, they they have to lump him with the Umayyad together, even though he was not. He was not. He simply was not a pro-Umayyad person. He was a neutral third party, like many other companions of the Prophet, like Ibn Umar and Sa'ad Nabi Waqqas and others, uh, if I recall correctly. And in fact, it, says, it, it, it is said that the majority of the Sahaba did not participate in the fitan, you know, involving uh, Ali and Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. But nonetheless, it, you know, the Shi'i polemicist to malign Abu Huraira must demonstrate and prove that Abu Huraira and his hadith was aligned against Ali bin Abi Talib, right? At the end of the day, they... That's the only criticism that they can posit, uh, you know, when it comes to their theology and whatnot. Um, however, you know, when you look at Abu Huraira's life, um, you see he neither was an Asibi, nor was he aligned with the Umayyad. Uh, as I said earlier, he didn't participate in any of the battles involving Ali ibn Abi Talib. And he, in fact, relayed many traditions against participating in the Fitan, as was the position of many of the Sahaba. In fact, it, it appears, based on many traditions, that Abu Huraira had amicable relationship, had an amicable relationship with the Hashemites. And he relayed several hadiths in the merits of, uh, you know, key figures from Al-Bayt. He also did not narrate any traditions in the merits of the Umayyads. So this is something that uh, we should take a step back from and think about. Shia present Abu Huraira, or like to present Abu Huraira, as this... Uh, pro-Mu'awiyah, pro-Umayyad hadith forger who who uh, made up hadiths to undermine Ali bin Abi Talib and his interests. This, in reality, is pure satire. 
right? And um, everything in Abu Huraira's life goes against this. Not only did he narrate the hadith of many key Hashemite figures, he even narrated a hadith on the merits of Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? He narrated a hadith pre preventing from the participation in these fitan. Um, in fact, with all that being said, if Abu Huraira was this uh, Umayyad hadith factory, you would expect to observe traditions in praise of the Umayyads, you know, pro-Umayyad hadiths and the fada'il of Mu'awiyah, fada'il of other uh, Umayyad figures in Abu Huraira's corpus. But you don't observe any of that, you know, and um, this is very telling, right? Because the uh, Shia author, Abdul Hussein Sharaf al-Din, who I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, presentation, um, he has a section on Abu Huraira's fabricated hadith, and he was not able to find a single authentic hadith of Abu Huraira praising Mu'awiyah bin Abi Sufyan. So what does he do? He goes to these like obscure sources, like uh, the sixth century source of Tariq Dimashq by Ibn Asakir, much later source. He gets a report with a bunch of like unknown people in the Isnad and unreliable transmitters that presents Abu Huraira praising Mu'awiyah, but it's not authentic to Abu Huraira, right? So you actually cannot find a single reliable tradition of Abu Huraira in praise of the Umayyads, even though you'll find the opposite, you know, him praising, uh, him quoting the Prophet, praising Ali, Hassan, and other people, as we will uh, present shortly. So, as I said, Abu Huraira narrated uh, several hadiths in the merits of Ahlul Bayt. One of them is a famous hadith, you know, in uh, Sahih Muslim, where the Prophet is quoted saying on the day of Khaybar, tomorrow I will give the banner to someone who loves Allah and his messenger, the famous hadith, and Allah and his messenger love him. And the Messenger of Allah then called Ali ibn Abi Talib and he handed him the banner. He, he then said to him, go forth and do not turn back until Allah grants you victory. So this is the hadith in the fada'il of uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib. And uh, the Shia are very well aware of this hadith. It has several sahaba who relate it. But Abu Huraira is one of those who, uh, you know, reported this hadith. Another hadith in the Sahihin, um, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah, uh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said to Al-Hasan, Oh Allah, I love him. So love him and love whoever loves him. Right? And uh, keep in mind, Al-Hasan not only was the son of uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, but he was also at one point uh, Muawiyah's adversary. Right? And uh, even though Al-Hasan conceded the caliphate uh, to Muawiyah in exchange for unity of the Muslim Ummah, you know, there always was this insecurity among the Umayyads that uh, Al-Hasan deep down was planning to revolt. Right, and so Abu Huraira narrating this hadith in the merits of Ali and Al Hassan, it certainly does not serve Umayyad interests. To the to the contrary, it, they they go against Umayyad interests. A third tradition, uh, Umayyad ibn Ishaq said, "I was once with Al Hassan ibn Ali, and we encountered Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira said to him." Show me the spot that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to kiss. Al-Hasan thus raised his shirt and Abu Huraira kissed his navel. So this is in Sahih ibn Habban. And um, again, not only does it show Abu Huraira you know, familiar with the, with the fada'il and merits of Ahl Bayt and, and uh, publicly and casually narrating them you know, to people, but it also shows an amicable relationship Abu Huraira had with uh, Ahl Bayt. He didn't hate them, right? He did not hate them. Um, he used to love them as an extension of his love of the Prophet وسلم. And um, it seems like Al-Hasan from this tradition also was not like an enemy of Abu Huraira, right? Um, 
he let him kiss him. He let him kiss him, right? I mean, how 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 much closer do you want to get to someone? Allah alam. Okay, uh, another example, uh, number four. Abu Huraira said, as in Jamaat Tirmidhi, authentic Islam. This is Abu Huraira's statement. He said, "There is not a man after the Prophet who had put on footwear, mounted a ride, or ridden a saddle better than Jafar ibn Abi Talib." Right. So Abu Huraira actually was very close to Jafar ibn Abi Talib, and he uh, felt forever indebted to him. And he, only, he he says things like this because Jafar helped them a lot. Uh, Jafar, uh, as in some authentic reports, the people of Asufa, these poor uh, companions of the Prophet, they'd be starving, right? And they'd collapse out of hunger and they'd like faint out of hunger. And so Jafar would bring them all to his house and he would give them everything that he had, everything. He'd even run out of food, what he'd do, I think in the report of Abu Huraira, he'd give them like containers like empty containers, like traces of honey, and they'd out of hunger, they'd be like licking the containers. So again, uh, this is a nice example that shows Abu Huraira's affinity to uh, some key Hashemite figures, including Jafar bin Abi Talib, who was you know beloved to the Messenger of Allah and beloved to his brother Ali bin Abi Talib, and uh, the rest of uh, Banu Hashim. Uh, and another example. Um, Abu Huraira said, uh, the Messenger of Allah said, as for Al-Abbas, as for the zakat of Al-Abbas, it is on me and an equal amount along with it. He then said, meaning the Prophet, the Prophet then said, O Umar, did you not sense that a man's paternal uncle is akin to his father? And this is in Sahih Muslim. Now, this hadith obviously is a, a merit of Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet and Ali ibn Abi Talib. But aside from that, I cite it because it, it, it highlights something regarding Banu Hashim, which is that this kinship that they have with the Prophet, you know, it it, uh, it translated in real life. It, it had effects. Uh, the Prophet used to, you know, um, take care of their needs often out of this kinship, and he would help them, and he felt a sense of belonging to them, right? So Abu Huraira narrated this hadith on Al-Abbas, who's also Ali's uncle, right? And, um, you know, this is... The Prophet is saying, essentially, my uncle was very close to me. He's like my father. Well, Ali's uncle is also, uh, sorry, Ali's father is also the Prophet's uncle, right? So again, these hadiths uh, generally revolve around the uh, merits of Ahl al-Bayt uh, and highlighting that. Okay, another instance that shows and highlights Abu Huraira's affinity to Ahl al-Bayt is uh, an event that happened in Islamic history during Al-Hassan's burial. To make a long story short, Al-Hasan initially wanted to be buried next to the Prophet وسلم, his grandfather. Okay? As you know, the burial was about to take place and the janazah was going to happen, uh, the Umayyads, Marwan ibn al-Hakam and all the Umayyads and their Mawali, they bore arms, they took their weapons, and they stood in the face of the procession and they said, you're not going to bury him uh, next to the Prophet. Why? Because Uthman, when he was killed, you know, his murderers did not let him be buried next to the Prophet. So Uthman is actually buried in Al-Baqir. He's not buried next to Abu Bakr al So a conflict was about to happen, right? Uh, after the Umayyads bore arms, Al-Hussein and his sons and his family and Mawali, they also took weapons. Like they took their weapons out and a war was like a battle was about to happen. People were going to die just because of Al-Hassan's burial, right? Who did Abu Huraira side with? 
Abu Huraira actually leaned, to, leaned towards Al Hassan, and Abu Huraira said, uh, you know, um, he says it over here. Had you seen, had you not seen, if if a son of Moses, a son of Musa, wished to be buried with his father, and was prevented, would they have transgressed against him? They said yes. He said, okay, this is the prophet's son, and he, he he's brought forth to be buried with his father. Yani, why are you not letting him be buried with his uh, grandfather? So Abu Hurairah actually sympathized with uh, Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein. And in fact, later in the tradition, Abu Hurairah goes to Al-Hussein and he tells him, you know, your brother, Al-Hassan, in his will, mentioned that he wanted to be buried with the Prophet unless you feared that a fitna would take place. So now that a fitna is take place, about to take place, please you know, oblige his wishes and do not let this, you know, break into, do not let hell break loose. And so Al-Hassan eventually was buried in Al-Baqiyah and not next to the Prophet uh, per his wishes, unfortunately. So again, we're seeing this uh, relationship Abu Huraira has with the Hashemites that is very far, you know, it's a far cry from from what these uh, Shiri polemicists like us to, to assume about Abu Huraira. In fact, uh, Aside from the merits of uh, Banu Hashim and the amicable relationships Abu Huraira had with them, um, Abu Huraira also had some things to say about the Khawarij, who at that time were primarily fighting Ali ibn Abi Talib. Um, Umayr ibn Ishaq said, uh, the Khawarij were once mentioned in front of Abu Huraira, to which he said, they are the worst of creation. Right? And see, these, are, these are the people that fought Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? And Ali eradicated them at uh, the Battle of Al-Nahrawan. So again, interests aligned with the interests of Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, so it seems. Here's another very nice example um, that shows not only that Abu Huraira used to respect Ahl al-Bayt and uh, revere them, but they also used to respect him as well. And so um, I'll read this tradition because it's nice and important. Uh, Sa'id ibn Marjana, Sa'id ibn Marjana, Ali ibn al-Husayn's companion. So Ali ibn al-Husayn is the son of al-Husayn. And he is uh, believed to be the fourth imam, according to uh, Twelver and Ismaili Shi'ism. Right? So this companion of Ali ibn al-Husayn, Sa'id ibn Marjana said, I once heard Abu Huraira say, the messenger of Allah said, any Muslim who frees a Muslim slave, then Allah will save an organ from his, uh, so, sorry, then Allah will save an organ of his from the hellfire, for each organ of the freed slave, right? So Abu Huraira said, any Muslim who frees a slave, uh, a Muslim slave, for every organ in that freed slave, Allah will save one of your organs from the hellfire, right? Sa'id ibn Marjana says, I then went to Ali ibn al-Husayn when I heard this hadith from Abu Huraira, and I mentioned it to him. He thus freed a slave of his they had bought from Ibn Ja'far, for 10,000 dirhams or 1,000 dinars. And the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. So again, it shows Ahl al-Bayt uh, acting on the hadith, right? He acted on Abu Huraira's hadith. And uh, what's further signified in that is that it's a very expensive slave that he freed, right? So he clearly made that uh, decision out of uh, conviction, out of devotion and conviction. And that's based on Abu Huraira's hadith. Right? Allah Ta'ala Alam. There's also some other examples where Ahlul Bayt can be seen confirming uh, Abu Huraira's practices. Ikrimah, um, the Mawla of Ibn Abbas once said, I prayed behind Abu Huraira, and he would make takbir when he would bow and prostrate. 
I then mentioned that to Ibn Abbas, to which he said, Woe to you, is that not the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah? And this is in Muslim Ahmad. Now, um, as I mentioned earlier in this presentation, there's examples of Abu Huraira being asked about Ibn Abbas and some things he said, and Abu Huraira confirmed it. But here, you see Ibn Abbas being asked about Abu Huraira, and he's confirming it. And of course, Ibn Abbas is uh, from Ahl al-Bayt, right? Uh, Ibn Abbas also was uh, one of uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib's governors in Basra, if I recall correctly, right? During his conflict with Muawiyah. So Ibn Abbas is not a nobody, even though many Twelvers today like to uh, think otherwise and undermine his, you know, the value of a testimony like this. Okay. So with that being said, um, it's clear that Abu Huraira had an affinity and a good relationship with uh, Banu Hashim, without a doubt. Um, but there's also other examples of his neutrality when it comes to the fitan that occurred between the Sahaba, which is now the default position, you know, among uh, Ahl Sunnah. Um, Ghalib ibn Abdul Rahman said, uh, when Uthman and Ali were mentioned, Abu Huraira would say, nothing but good should be said about the dead, and nothing but good should be said about the living. Right, so this tradition has some weakness. Ghalib ibn Abdul Rahman, the person who's reporting this account from Abu Huraira, he's not well known, right? But the weakness isn't too severe, right? So it's a plausible account. It may be inauthentic, but it also may be uh, authentic. And uh, if it is true, and it certainly is in line with uh, Abu Huraira's, uh, you know, biographical data and whatnot, um, it, it, it should demonstrate that Abu Huraira was not this person spreading anti-Ali hadiths. Um, he didn't necessarily even believe that was permissible, right? In fact, Abu Huraira also relayed some hadith preventing, uh, you know, involvement in fitan. And uh, also, I labeled them as anti-establishment hadith because these are, for example, the types of hadiths that a tyrannical government would not like to spread. Right, these are hadiths that emphasize the accountability of a Muslim ruler, hadiths that emphasize, um, you know, the problem associated with seeking power, right? The downfalls of that. So, these are hadiths that a pro government hadith factory you would not expect it to, to uh, generate these kinds of hadiths. So, we'll go over some of them. Uh, Abu Huraira reported that the Prophet said, You shall seek rulership. And it will be a source of regret on the day of judgment. And this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. In Sahih Muslim, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah said, Whoever points a weapon at his brother, then the angels shall curse him until he puts it down, even if it was his own blood brother. Right? So again, these are the types of hadith that prevented many people from getting involved between Muawiyah and Ali and their conflict. This is another interesting hadith. Uh, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah said, The destruction of my ummah is at the hands of young boys from Quraysh. It seems like Abu Huraira actually knew who the clan was. He then said, If you wish, I can name them, such and such clan and such and such clan. The transmitter, Amr ibn Yahya, uh, so uh, this transmitter He said I used to travel with my grandfather His grandfather was the companion of Abu Huraira Who narrated this hadith So he said I used to travel with my grandfather To the Marwanids When they ruled in Sham These are the Umayyads right? When he would see them as young man He would say to us Perhaps these are among them Referring to the young man mentioned in Abu Huraira's hadith Perhaps these are among them 
And we would reply to him, you are more knowledgeable. And the hadith is Sahih Muslim. So, Abu Huraira reported this hadith um, saying that the destruction of the ummah is at the hands of young boys from a certain, from, from Quraysh. Right? Abu Huraira's companion, it seemed like it was that was enough information from them, or maybe they got more information later on. When he saw the uh, Umayyads in Syria, he, he thought that the hadith could be referring to them, right? So again, you know, nothing in this legacy... And if Abu Huraira was known to be, you know, pro-Umayyad, then his, yeah. this companion who was close to him, would have, it would have never crossed his mind to think that, oh, yeah. it's likely that Abu Huraira had them in mind. Well, if he knew Abu Huraira well and knew that this is what he actually believed, it wouldn't have crossed, that interpretation wouldn't have crossed his mind. Yeah, and look, all all the tafasir, most of them mention it's Bani Umayyad, right? So it's not like uh, through Abu Huraira we realize this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like a criticism of, of some aspects of this tribe. And I mean, uh, this, this yeah. argument overall, Abdullah, just seems so weak. I mean, it seems to me that uh, they only tried to base their argument on some weak narration from Ibn Asakir, a late source. Mm-hmm. And here you gave an overwhelming amount of evidence to the contrary. And so the only thing that I'm thinking about right now is, you know, surely something other than intellectual doubts is stimulating and motivating this argument. And so I want to ask, why do a lot of these Shias have an axe to grind with Abu Huraira? What's their motive? in trying to discredit him because it seems like it's it's extremely desperate do you think that their motive is not really to attack him per se but to try to discredit the entire sunni corpus um and given that he's a major narrator that would help them achieve their their objective or is there something about abu huraira that they really don't like maybe he transmits other teachings that are contrary to their theology and their narrative, not to the Ahlul Bayt per se, but to their theology narrative. I'm just trying to think, like, what's Mm -hmm. motivating such a clearly false and baseless argument like this? You know, the, the, um, unfortunately, polemics often brings out the worst in people, right? Desperation. And so let's take uh, Mahmoud Abu Rayya as an example. Uh, This Egyptian figure, who wrote uh, this uh, book condemning Abu Huraira. It's called uh, Sheikh al-Madira Abu Huraira. Very bad abrasive text uh, in general. So he wants to criticize Abu Huraira and make it fit into this Shia narrative. Even though he, he does not proclaim to be a Shia, uh, you know, even though there is obviously a Shia bias in his uh, writing. So what does he do? He attacks Abu Huraira for narrating these hadith against the fitna. So like Abu Huraira says, uh, you know, there will be a fitna. There's other hadith, you know, a fitna that um, whoever sits is better than the person who stands and whoever, you know, stands is better than the person who walks. I think it's from Abu Huraira. Um, and, and similar hadith. Abu Raya finds a way to criticize Abu Huraira for narrating these hadith. How? He says, well, um, in reality, the believers should have uh, stood with the truth, uh-huh. which is Ali Abi Talib. And uh, Abu Huraira was only narrating these hadiths to prevent people from joining Ali bin Abi Talib, right? So it's like whack-a-mole. You can't, you really can't like, yeah, yeah. 
No, there's no fine. Like, yeah, yeah, it's not pleasing. Them, you yeah. you can't get anywhere with with someone that's you know this desperate. Mm -hmm. He's willing to find anything and and distort it, right? Um, as for the Shia in general, um, obviously the goal is to undermine Sunni hadith sources, right? They the, their goal they want to demolish what we have and uh, transplant their own mediocre and unreliable sources like Kitab al-Kafi and Ibn Babawi's books, which are plagued with all kinds of other issues. I, I don't want to get into that. There's mm, mm. That's the discussion for another day, right? But they want to demolish what we have and replace it with what they have, essentially. And so you end up with these polemics, not just against Abu Huraira, but uh, against Umar ibn Khattab, uh, against Ibn Mas'ud. You have some polemics against Ibn Mas'ud as well, Abu Bakr, and Aisha, عنها, Anas bin Malik. You know, they have a tradition in their sources. It's not reliable according to their own standards. It's considered weak, but they still cite it, a lot of them. Um, it quotes Jafar al-Sadiq saying, and it's, of course, a fabrication. It has It's plagued with unreliable transmitters and it's a snab. It quotes Jafar al-Sadiq saying, there are three people who used to lie about the Prophet Abu Huraira, Anas ibn Malik, and the woman. And their later scholar al-Majlisi says the woman is Aisha. Right? So... This tradition is not authentic according to their standards, but it's very much representative of, of uh, their beliefs and their attitudes. And they still cite it despite its inauthenticity, of course. It's 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 a disgusting fabrication. And um, the goal is obviously to undermine our our prophetic traditions at the end of the day. It's not about Abu Huraira. Really, Abu Huraira is just, uh, he's the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's much harder for you to start your attack against Hadith by doubting the authority of the prophet's wife per se right even though they do but usually abu Huraira is an easy person to start with yeah. or the prophet's cousin like you know abdullah bin abbas or the prophet's servant right mm -hmm. the, the case is a bit more like obvious for the average layman abu Huraira, though it's just they'll wiggle, wiggle their way in and eventually that's how it starts right so he's the low-hanging fruit unfortunately that that's caught in this crossfire uh, of uh pointless polemics but yeah that's to make a long story short um so aside from uh, early shia satire against abu Huraira and all the downfalls in it um another polemic that we observe today you know being more popularized by uh, people uh, by some feminists today are uh, allegations of misogyny uh, this allegation that abu Huraira was a misogynist who uh, forged anti-women hadiths in the name of the Prophet sallallahu um, and, and, and the reason they say this is because simply he narrates a hadith that are not aligned with uh, feminist uh, ideals, right? And he does not, he's not the only person who does this. You will find even Aisha narrating hadiths that don't align with feminist ideals, right? But uh, again, he's the low-hanging fruit. Um, and so he's often the subject of a lot of these uh, criticisms. But... Um, the question that begs itself is, you know, was Abu Huraira even a misogynist? You know, is that really an accurate, uh, you know, portrayal of his uh, of his life and his personality and his beliefs? And did Abu Huraira single-handedly forge an entire culture of, of misogynist Islam, for lack of a better term? Um, so, you, you have to look at the precursors to this narrative, you know, what are people saying about Abu Huraira to justify that he was a uh, misogynist? So recently, there is this uh, person on Twitter made a made a, a rant against Abu Huraira or a thread, 
And uh, she made this claim that Abu Huraira never married. He is the source of many reports demeaning to women. And then she cites uh, Khalid Abu al So notice how um, they're not saying it, but they're trying to create this image that he's an incel. Yeah, I was, I was actually is, thinking about that. <laughs> that he is this, uh, you know, sexually frustrated incel who hates women, and he's yeah, <laughs> making up all yeah. these hadith about women. Let's let's look at that. Just like dissect that in a calm manner. Um, was Abu Harira never married? No, he's actually married, right? And not only was he married per report in Sahih Ibn Habban, and the, his wife's name is known, and it's verified in other traditions as well. Primary and biographical sources even mention the names of his children. So how are you going to say he was never married? This is just like shoddy research. This is not. This is not even like pseudo intellectual. This is just pseudo. Yeah. You know, just poor, and, research. Uh, just poor research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a, a, a and, 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 and from what I could see, you're quoting Sahih ibn Habban. Like you're not even quoting yeah. some, you know, rare yeah. work that scholars utilize. Like Sahih yeah. ibn Habban. Yeah. Mm. No, no. There are all, there are accounts of Abu Huraira himself describing his marriage with uh, Busra bint Ghazwan. Right. He used to be her servant, by the way. Yeah. So he used to be her servant, and then Alhamdulillah, Allah gave him money, and uh, he stopped be becoming like a very poor man, right? He ended up marrying her, and he had, you know, children from her. Um, so it's very strange that someone would say he's not married to, to push this incel narrative about him. He's this like frustrated guy behind the keyboard who hates women, mm -hmm. uh, and and I could see where it comes from. By the way, this 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 very problematic, uh, you know, flanderization of Abu Huraira, as you said earlier. Um, there are reports of Abu Huraira during and, the and, and you know, and just to remind, you know, just to let the listeners know, I mean, Khalid Abu Fadl is not an Islamic scholar by any stretch uh, of the, uh, of the okay. imagination. You, you know, he may be Arab, he may have an Arab name, but he is not a scholar and he is not reliable. And so for me, I'm not shocked to see such poor research from the likes of Dr. Khalid, but uh, we won't digress any further than that. Yeah, please continue. <clears throat> Yeah, there is a lot that uh, is left to be said about uh, his work on Abu Huraira. You know, I could have delved in more detail, but uh, maybe maybe on another occasion, inshallah. So, again, um, this flanderized narrative of Abu Huraira, mm -hmm. incel who hates women, mm -hmm. blatantly fallacious. Um, and, and that's like the, the premise to the next suggestion, which is whenever you find a hadith, uh, involving a woman in Abu, from Abu Huraira, you you will link it to the idea that he's not married and he has frustrations towards women, right? It's just pure dishonesty. Mm. Was Abu Huraira a misogynist? Like, if you are going to conclude that Abu Huraira is a misogynist from a few traditions that you don't like in his corpus, should you not at least try to study his corpus more comprehensively to, to get a better understanding of his motives, his perception, because if you do, had you done so, you would have seen that it's it's kind of difficult to describe him as a misogynist. It's just too reductive. It's it's like the lazy way out where you just want to label him to move on and and uh, undermine his his uh, integrity, right? So a lot of his hadith in reality um, are very pro woman, you know, for a lack of better term. Mm. Um, they are the opposite of misogyny. And so we'll go over some examples, inshallah, over here. And there's a lot more. You know, I, I could not mention them all. And some of them are a bit more um, uh, implicit than obvious. So th there's also much more examples, inshallah. But we'll go over some here. Um, as an example, 
Abu Huraira, and this is a famous hadith. Every feminist knows it. Every Muslim knows it. Everyone quotes it, right? But many don't know who is the source of this hadith. Mm. Abu Huraira reported that a man came to the Prophet uh, and said, who among the people is most deserving of my fine treatment? The Prophet told him, your mother. The man said again, then who? The Prophet said, your mother. The man said, then who? The Prophet said, your mother. The man then, the man then said, then who? The Prophet said, then your father. This hadith in Sahih Muslim. In reality, when I looked at this hadith, different isnads, in reality, Abu Huraira pretty much is the only uh, source to authentically report this hadith. There is another isnad uh, related through Bahaz ibn Hakim from his father, from his grandfather, but it's not a good isnad. It's not like the most reliable. It's, it's, it's a bit questionable. This is actually like Abu Huraira is the only Sahabi through whom this hadith is relayed with like a good isnad. Right, so everyone quotes the hadith that from a misogynist, you know, not knowing that uh, it's Abu Huraira who, who uh, reported this. Yeah. Subhanallah. Uh, and another example, uh, Muhammad ibn Sirin once said, uh, "They once debated or boasted among each other, are there more men or more women in Jannah?" Uh, that's an interesting question, right? Um, Abu Huraira thus said. Did not Abu Qasim, meaning the Prophet وسلم, did not the Prophet وسلم, said, say, every person in Jannah will have two wives and there will be no bachelor in Jannah. Right. So what is Abu Huraira trying to say? Abu Huraira saying there are more women in heaven. There are more women in Jannah than there are men. Right. Uh, again, when you look at these traditions, you realize this idea that you're creating this artificial conflict between Abu Huraira and women. It's it's a fantasy. It's an imagination. Abu Huraira believes that there are more women in Jannah than men, even though someone might have a bias and say otherwise, right? Like someone, so in Ibn Abbas's hadith, the prophet also says that uh, the majority of the dwellers of hellfire were women. That's what he observed, right? So Abu Huraira could have taken that as a uh, argument that no, there's not more women in Jannah. He could have like extended it in some shape yeah. or form, right? But he actually inferred from another prophetic tradition that there are more women in heaven than men, right? So uh, there's something to note. Uh, in another hadith, this great hadith of Abu Huraira and Sahih Muslim, uh, the Messenger of Allah said, A believing man must not hate a believing woman. If he dislikes a behavior of hers, he will be pleased with another. He's referring to a man and his wife, right? And these hadiths are enjoining men to take care of their wife, even if they like or dislike a certain quality in her. That should not be grounds to abuse or divorce, right, immediately. Surely there should be some other redeeming qualities, you know, in your Muslim wife that you would appreciate, right? So this is a very non-misogynistic hadith. Uh, example number four, um, and this is a very insightful example. Um, and they're all insightful, of course, but uh, I'm very, like, appreciative of these hadith. Um, Abu Huraira reported that a man once approached the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi and said, O Messenger of Allah, my wife has given birth to a black child. Uh, the implicit uh, suggestion is that the man is doubting his wife's fidelity. Okay? Uh, the child does not resemble him in skin tone, and the man is essentially suggesting that his wife could have fornicated with a, uh, a black male, pretty much. Yeah. 
And so he goes to the Prophet, you know, with that concern. The Prophet replies to this man. This is all from Abu Huraira, by the way. The Prophet replies to this man saying, do you own any camels? The man said, yes. The Prophet asked, what are their colors? The man said, they're red, red in color. The Messenger of Allah asked, are there any gray camels among them? The man said, yes. The Prophet said, and how did that happen? The man replied, perhaps it reverted to a strain. It reverted to some old strain, essentially like it. He is describing genetics in a very simple, you know, Arab, uh, 6th century, 7th century lingo. Perhaps it reverted to a strain. The Messenger of Allah thus replied, and perhaps this one, your son, reverted to a strain. Right? The Prophet was giving him an example like uh, of what we know today as recessive traits in genetics. Right? They might skip several generations, but they exist in your DNA, and they'll they'll become manifest maybe five generations down, six generations down. So this hadith, ya akhi, it speaks to the insecurity of the the average Arab man, right, at the time. One of the biggest fears is that their wives would, like, commit adultery, mm. and they would raise a, raise a child that's not theirs. And this insecurity often caused much abuse towards women, right? Imagine a woman in this situation. Right. Uh, you have maybe, and this is very common among the Arabs, by the way, your fourth great grandfather may have been an African slave. This is very common. You know, many Sahaba have like ancestors who are African slaves. These phenotypes, these, these recessive traits may appear like four generations down. So now you have a man accusing his wife of Zina. And for the rest of his life, he's going to be berating her and doubting his son and, yeah. and rejecting his son. So, so this hadith ya akhi, is like saving women at the time, really. This oh, hadith yeah, is like. Yeah. This is a powerful hadith, actually. I mean, you know, uh, I think even, you know, even a lot of people will probably look at this hadith and be like, no, I mean, this is overdoing it when it comes to husn al-dhan, but subhanAllah, you know, the Prophet you know, is exhibiting uh, his prophetic wisdom here and his mercy. And, uh, you know, subhanAllah, yeah, uh, you, know, you would not expect a misogynist to concoct such a hadith. Absolutely not. Um, or even to even be willing to transmit this hadith. Like, okay, I know this hadith, but I don't want to transmit it because I don't like what it says. You know, I think we should be hard on our wives and not be naive and what. Yeah, I mean, this complete discounts this theory. Yeah, it's very favorable for the woman. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, there, there's a term, there's a scientific term for this concept. I forgot it. Like when, when this gene like skips. Mm. And there is actually a famous case, I believe, in South Africa. Like mm. two white parents, they had a child who looked black, mm. and the kid got, and it was during the apartheid system. Like there, I think there was a movie about this too, and the kid was their child, uh. right? Genetics, it's, Subhanallah, these how these things work. But uh, back in the day, and I'm sure this happens in Arab countries, Yanni. Mm. If the kid doesn't resemble the father, like you know, an aunt will whisper to her brother saying, uh, "I'm sure in any in any other society before DNA testing." I think no, they would no. just uh, immediately accuse the, you know, accuse the the woman. But I mean, with this hadith, um, that husn al will have to be, have to be tolerated. It would have to be. And of course, now, uh, if a man, you know, approaches me, if I become a father in the future and my son approaches me with similar conditions, I, inspired by Abu Huraira's hadith, will, you know, yeah. give him advice similar to to what uh, the Prophet gave. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Here's another example related to the previous example in some shape or form. Uh, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah said, 
avoid the seven destructive sins. It was said, what are they, O Messenger of Allah? He said, shirk, sorcery, murder of a sanctified life without a just cause, consumption of riba, consumption of the orphan's wealth, fleeing on the day of battle, and the slander of chaste and unwary believing women. Right? So, why is it that slandering an oblivious, you know, chaste woman, why is it, why is that specifically, you know, emphasized? Yeah. You know, why not a man? I mean, there's... Why not to say chaste and unwary believers? Yeah. Yeah. Right. SubhanAllah, I mean... Again, these hadiths yeah, serve to to bolster women's rights in societies, right? Uh, keep in mind, yani, a common insult back in the day was to berate a person, you know, by doubting his mom's uh, chastity, right? You know, and Islam came to annihilate this practice. Um, and women are more susceptible than men to these things, right? And it's even like kind of more frowned upon when women engage in them. And the jurists, yani, talk about these things. You know, each one has different repercussions. Different types of harm caused by a male, you know, being promiscuous and a woman promiscuous. Each one has its own set of harms, but uh, but women are much more susceptible to these kinds of uh, to this kind of slander, right? And so when you see, for example, uh, in Aisha's case with uh, the Prophet, when she was slandered by uh, Abdullah bin Ubay and accused of committing zina, she had a very hard time, right? Because society is uh, very uncomfortable with these things, and usually, usually. The discomfort is uh, is expressed towards the woman, and the slanderer himself is not uh, as uh, yeah, he challenged per se, or back at least it was like that back in the day, right? But now in Islam, you know that we put restrictions on that. Alhamdulillah, and now it's one of the major sins, right? So you think twice before you want to uh, infringe upon a Muslim woman's rights uh, based on such a hadith and other hadith as well. Um, another example of a hadith of uh, Abu Huraira. This is also related to the theme we were talking about. Um, Abu Huraira reported that Sa'ad ibn Ubadah said, O Messenger of Allah, if I find a man with my wife, and what he's saying is a man like engaging in relations with my wife, mar marital relations or intercourse, am I supposed to leave him until I bring four witnesses? Right? He's talking about zina, you know, for the punishment of stoning to happen for an adulteress or an adulterer you need four witnesses right so Saad is questioning that he's like what if I find a man with my wife am I supposed to go and let them should I let them like continue and go get four witnesses the messenger of Allah replied yes Saad, Saad you know out of anger and out of like his jealousy and protectiveness he replied no by the one who sent you with the truth I would hastily strike her, him with the sword before that so I would kill him before even thinking about getting witnesses. The messenger of Allah then said, listen to what your leader says. He has concern and I have more concern. And Allah has more concern than me. So this hadith, uh, in, in, in many ways, it, it serves to protect women's rights in reality with these kinds of things. Because, you know, why are you not allowed to just kill your wife? If you find another man with her in Islam, you know, why is the Prophet telling him this? It's because this opens the door to a mess. Anyone can then murder his wife and say, Oh, I found a man, you know, with her. You know, that's not how law works. And it just opens the door to too many transgressions, right? 
you you cannot just kill your wife or uh, a man you find and then claim retrospectively that you you found him with your wife, right? So again, this hadith indirectly it it serves to maintain yeah, any order and uh, women's rights. Um, I think this is the last example I have, and there's many more. Uh, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, It is impermissible for a woman to request the divorce of her Muslim sister to take what she has, for she is to have what Allah had willed for her. You know, this is something uh, a lot of women yani, can relate to. Uh, you know, a lot of women are uh, worried that other women could steal their husbands, and and uh, and these things certainly do happen, right? And uh, Abu Huraira is reporting from the Prophet, a woman cannot, you know, pressure a man to divorce his wife. This is haram, right? So again, these all these hadith in totality and many others, when you lump them together, you see that Abu Huraira is, I, I wouldn't even label him as a pro-woman person per se, or a misogynist, like the whole dichotomy doesn't make sense. He's just a normal person relaying prophetic tradition. Right, he's not inventing these pro-woman hadith, and he's not inventing the anti the anti-woman hadith, even though they're not anti-woman. In fact, some of these hadith that he's criticized for transmitting, um, they're not exclusively relayed by him, right? And even those that are exclusively relayed by him, you know, when you dig deep down, you realize that the underlying uh, concept behind it is found in other texts. I actually decided not to delve in the detail of, of, of the examples that are cited against Abu Huraira. Hmm. And that's more appropriate in a, in a more detailed discussion and the fiqh behind them and whatnot. Yeah. So inshallah, it'll be for another day, if Allah wills. Okay, last but not least. Um, this is a topic that uh, I am, I've thought about how I should address it. I know Bassam as well, uh, you know, uh, has, has uh, we all have potential concerns that it could be misconstrued or misunderstood. And, uh, you know, certainly when, so everything I said earlier is in this, in the scope of like outright deviants, Tadia, mm -hmm. right? that are criticizing the Sahaba and people who are worthy of condemnation, whose arguments are total nonsense, mm -hmm. right? Now we're moving to a, uh, a new, a new field where where the debate is not necessarily between a full-blown heretic oh. and a Muslim, right? The, there, there are debates taking place between Muslim scholars where we could conclude that, you know, one group of scholars may have arrived to an incorrect conclusion on something, but uh, inshallah, they're not malicious and oh. sinister, right, in the way they, uh, they go about, you know, their research and their uh, study. So what, what, what am I talking about? Well, one of the ways Abu Huraira is criticized is that there are certain quotes from early Kufan jurists, namely, you know, the Hanafi madhab is a Kufan madhab. It's it's one of the uh, legacies of that school. There are other Kufan schools, but they died out. So pretty much we're talking about the Hanafi madhab and Abu Huraira. Uh, there are some quotes from proto-Hanafi figures uh, and then later Hanafi figures Um that that do undermine Abu Huraira in some shape or form, right? Not necessarily his character, but some, some, his traditions, right? And so these quotes, you know, the Hanafis now are from Ahl Sunnah, of course, and uh, they respect Abu Huraira. And I've I've not seen like a Orthodox Hanafi 
like slandering Abu Huraira. That doesn't exist, alhamdulillah. But there are heretics who misuse the Hanafi madhab or claim to be Hanafi, right? And they take some quotes and they lump them together and they try to, again, create this image of Abu Huraira. And so we're going to address some of that, inshallah, uh, you know, and uh, clarify potential misconceptions. So even though I'm... I'm going to talk about Abu Huraira with respect to the Hanafi school. We should recognize that this phenomenon is, is really, it transcends the Hanafi madhab. It's actually observed in several other schools. Um, so what am I talking about? The Sunni schools today generally converge towards a common Sunni identity, right? Uh, that reveals all companions of the Prophet. You don't have, for example, a Shafi'i who dislikes... Uh, you know, uh, the Sahaba from Egypt or the Sahaba from Medina or the Sahaba from Kufa. You don't have uh, um, uh, a Hanafi today who like hates Ibn Umar, Abdullah Ibn Umar, because he's from Medina, right? That doesn't exist. Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, a lot of these uh, differences, they sort of mellowed out with time as the Sunni schools converged towards this uh, common identity. But back in the day, there was a lot more regionalism in how uh, the, the fuqaha operated, the schools of fiqh. And so you had different regions in the Muslim world where biases started to emerge. You have the school of Kufa. You have uh, a school in Basra. You have a school in Mecca, a school in uh, Medina as well. Right? And what would happen is that uh, the scholars in these pools or these, these regional schools, they would give precedence to their own sahaba over other Sahaba from other regions, right? So Imam Malik in Medina, for example, uh, would give precedence to Ibn Umar over Abdullah bin Masud. This is a fact. This is something you will observe in his work, and it's something that uh, and you have some quotes here and there and, and whatnot. And the people in Kufa are going to give precedence to Ibn Masud over Ibn Umar and Abu Hurairah in Medina, right? So each region started essentially to... Uh, um, prioritize their Sahaba and not only that but believe that their Sahaba were more knowledgeable and more authoritative than other Sahaba you know it got to that point at some point um, and not only was it about the Sahaba but it also sometimes extended to the Tabi'in and I'll get to that later so a few extant, med extant Madhabs still contain vestigial structures from that era where the traditions of Sahaba from other regions are neglected and or undermined. So today, we see this in the, you know, in the Maliki Madhab and the Hanafi Madhab today. Um, Hanafi Madhab is very Kufi-centric, right? Uh, lots of Ibn Mas'ud, the sayings of Ibn Mas'ud, the companions of Ibn Mas'ud, their legacy, pretty much, and a few other Sahaba in that area. In Medina, uh, Imam Malik uh, generally shunned and excluded most of the Iraqi hadiths. You have very few hadiths in the Muqtah. And that survives till this day, right? So in fiqh, a lot of these schools will um, base their fiqh on this subset of traditions and exclude you know, the rest. Um, what other madhabs um, were able to bypass this? It uh, started with al-Shafi'i. Al-Shafi'i pretty much uh, you know, um, championed this idea that no, uh, instead of you know prioritizing one region at the expense of another or the opinions of some Sahaba at the expense of others, let's just make the authentic prophetic traditions to be the the be all and 
regardless of you know location. So what the Shafi'i did is essentially formulated fiqh based on the hadiths of Mecca, Medina, Kufa, Basra, Egypt, uh, whenever he had any. Um, and so it's more universal. And then after him is the madhab of uh, Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal. It is very similar. Um, but it also includes more the opinion of the Sahaba than Imam Shafi'i. So again, you have the Maliki madhab and the Hanafi madhab. They have this. They still have this regional uh, exceptionalism when it comes to other hadith. Um, but once again, uh, there are past Sunni schools that had this attitude that died out. And uh, here's an example of uh, Basran regionalism. So Ma'amara bin Rashid said, uh, Amr, Amr Rashid is Basran, right? So Ma'amar said, Amr bin Dinar, he is Meccan. He once said to me, in your vicinity in Basra, is Abu Shatha considered more knowledgeable or Hassan al-Basri? So Abu Shatha is a student of Ibn Abbas, his Jabir ibn Zaid. And he is considered an extension of the Meccan school, right? And Hassan al-Basri is the Basran school. So he's essentially asking Ma'mar, who, who do you guys in your area consider more knowledgeable? Abu Shatha or Hassan al-Basri, the Meccan tabi'i or the Basran tabi'i? Ma'mar, who is Basran, replied with this hyperbole. He said, some in our vicinity claim that Al-Hassan is even more knowledgeable than Ibn Abbas. Right? So this is this is how extreme the regionalism can get to the extent that they even believe that some of their tabi'in could be more knowledgeable than the Sahaba of other regions. Right? So uh, Ma'mar said, some even believe Al-Hassan is more knowledgeable than Ibn Abbas. Amr bin Dinar, who's Meccan, who obviously has a bias to Ibn Abbas, he replied saying, was Al-Hassan al-Basri but one of Ibn Abbas's boys? Ma'mar then replied, and was Abu Shatha but one of Al-Hassan's boys? So again, you're seeing this uh, regionalism that sometimes even led to the, uh, criti not criticism, but an undermining of um, the extent of knowledge some Sahaba had from other regions, right? Uh, so that's the city of Basra, right? We also have Medinite region, regionalism in Medina. Yahya bin Said al-Ansari, he's a junior tabi'i, he's a teacher of Imam Malik. Um, he was once presented with uh, Ibn Mas'ud's position on something. Now, Ibn Mas'ud's obviously uh, a key figure in Kufa, not Medina. So he commented saying, what have we with Ibn Mas'ud on this matter? Abdullah bin Mas'ud used to learn from us, yet we did not used to learn from him, referring to Medina. He used to issue verdicts in his vicinity, and he would then visit Medina. He would find the Medinite verdicts different than his, so he revert to them. And this is in Al-Madkhali, the Sunan of uh, Al-Bayhaqi. Uh, so again, um, it's not about Abu Huraira per se, right? There is even, this... It's not even about Kufa <laughs> per se either. Yeah, really, it's not about Ibn Mas'ud. It's not about uh, Abdullah bin Abbas. Yeah. It's about a regional bias that existed you know, at some point yeah. uh, among these different schools. Yeah. And uh, that that uh, incited them to prioritize their traditions at the expense of everyone else's, right? Yeah. So what is, it, what is up with Abu Huraira and the Kufans yeah. and the later Hanifis? Well, Abu Huraira was a prominent figure of the Medinite school, right? He, Imam, Abu Huraira's traditions in the Muta Imam Malik, very common one of his main sources. So because of that, for such reasons, Abu Huraira's transmission was occasionally undermined by early Kufan partisans, partisans in an analogous manner. Uh, 
So Ibrahim al-Nakhai, Ibrahim al-Nakhai is the teacher of Abu Hanifa's teacher. So I mean, for lack of a better term, proto-Hanafi, if, if we could describe him like that. Uh, he said, they, Ibrahim al-Nakhai said, they, the earlier Kufan authorities, used to hold that most of what Abu Huraira transmitted is abrogated. Right? So we'll take, we'll pause on that. What does that mean, though? Implicitly, it means that Abu Huraira is reliable because he believes they originate from the Prophet yeah. but it's just that they're abrogated. Later, the Prophet changed the verdict or he, he uh, modified something. But it has an implicit rec recognition yeah. in Abu Huraira's reliability. Even and, if and obviously, this would only call into question any fiqhi rulings yeah. by Abu Huraira because obviously Abu Huraira did not just narrate about fiqh. Yeah. So they, that doesn't mean that they discounted because obviously you know theology or things about eschatology cannot be abrogated per se. Yeah. But I guess the context here is, has to do with jurisprudence. Look. That is correct, and that's actually what the next quote goes to. Um, Ibrahim and Nakhai said also yeah. another quote. Yeah. They did not adopt the hadith of Abu Huraira except that which was about heaven and hell. Yeah. So essentially, yeah. falai al amal and yeah. uh, uh, nice things here and there. But uh, when it comes to ahkam and fiqh, they would not uh, adopt it. Yeah. Now, people try to rationalize this, right? As for the first quote of Ibrahim and Nakhai, to me, it seems like there is a, a logical inconsistency with this. First of all, um, as I said, it entails that Abu Huraira is an implicit recognition that he's reliable. So that's not necessarily what's being questioned. Rather, he's saying that it's abrogated. And the problem with that is that Abu Huraira accepted Islam later in, in the Prophet's life, in the year seven after Hijrah. Yeah. So he actually converted at the end of the Prophet's life. Yeah. So it's very unlikely that everything Abu Huraira reported was from these earlier traditions of the Prophet that were all abrogated, yeah. right? In reality, most of the Abu Huraira's experiences with the Prophet are, are at the end of his life. They are the abrogating ahadith, not the abrogated ahadith, yeah. right? And it also doesn't make sense uh, in another way. Like, how is it that a companion ends up with, like, just abrogated hadith? Like, is he, like, going around collecting abrogated hadith? Yeah, like, you, yeah. there, there has to be, like, a confounding variable to, to lead to something like this. It's not like a co You can't have a coincidence where someone, like, for four years with the Prophet, everything he has is abrogated, right? It seems like more of, a, like, a broad brush he used to paint something. And it goes yeah. against uh, some of the things that Ibrahim al Nakha used to do. You know, the, the, the Kufan jurists, like Ibrahim al-Nakhai, there's another Sahabi, subhanAllah, um, I forgot his name. He narrates something on Al-Masah al-Khufayn. And um, I forgot his name, subhanAllah. But, but because his conversion was later, after Surah Al-An'am, if I recall correctly, they don't consider abrogated, right? So his conversion date was actually a factor in uh, how they yani, determined if it was abrogated or abrogating. So there's some inconsistency here. Um, it likely was influenced by this regional bias that existed, right? And, uh, you know, Ibrahim al-Nakhai was kind of known. Uh, and and I, obviously, uh, I know this may require, I know that you may not have directly looked into this, but it would also be interesting to see whether the hadith that they find concerning from Abu Huraira, whether they fall into the corroborated uh, pile or the exclusive pile, so that would that would, that would, there's room for research there as well. 
Oh yeah, um, there's a lot, and uh, a lot of these discussions in fiqh, you know, they're they're uh, elaborate on al-Shafi'i Kitab al-Um. Mm. He has an entire debate with the, one of the people from Ahl al-Ra'i on a hadith of Abu Huraira. Oh. It was like a long debate on Abu Huraira's reliability, mm. a Shafi'i, you know, championing that. Um, so yeah, uh, there is some inconsistency, inconsistency in this statement, Allah alam. And um, even some of the Ahl al-Ra'i, they actually cite some of Abu Huraira's hadith, right? It's not like they rejected everything. Yeah. Like Muhammad Shaybani. Uh, you know, in his works, uh, you will find hadith of Abu Huraira. Mm. Like, it's not like they fully abandoned him, but they want it to be selective. That That's re- the reality of what it is. Um, these Kufin jurists wanted to be selective in what they accepted from Abu Huraira, understandably so. They did not want to take from him things that went against their regional, you know, amal. Mm. Um, just like Imam Malik did not want to take from Ibn Mas'ud things that went against uh, their regional amal in Medina, mm. right? Now that doesn't mean it's right. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I don't agree with that conclusion. You know. That, but would uh, you say that over time the Hanafi Madhab began to shift away from this uh, stance against Abu Hanifa, or is this something that remains within the Madhab? Um, so for the most part, for the most part, um, it's not as explicit. There are some masail in fiqh. Uh, you know, where the hadith of Abu Huraira actually is the point of debate. And so these discussions uh, exist, you know. Um, you know, famous hadith of, uh, there's a hadith of Abu Huraira al-Musarrat. Uh, hadith al-Musarrat is a controversy among these early Ahl al-Rai. Essentially, a uh, hadith of Abu Huraira, uh, we'll go on a tangent now, but it's related. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you buy a sheep, right, and then you milk the sheep, yeah. right, and you consume that milk or whatever, the milk goes bad, but then you want to return the sheep. Yeah. You've now derived utility from that sheep and you've taken value from it. So how do you return it? Like you have to obviously return more, right? Mm-hmm. So the hadith says that you can return essentially dates. Like with the sheep, you return mm-hmm. some dates in mm-hmm. exchange for the milk that you took. Now, some um, some later Hanafis, they say this hadith goes against Qiyas. Okay, yeah. Right? And so we will not accept it, yeah. right? And so some later Hanafis, uh, some, uh, they, they propose this idea that the way this, and, and this is like kind of an anachronism, by the way, it's not representative of the earlier attitudes, like Ibrahim al-Nakhai, but it's an idea that existed later, that uh, the Hanafi Madhab only, uh, Hanafi Madhab, if the transmitter is not a jurist, his hadith has to accept, has to be in line with Qiyas. Mm-hmm. And, as, and if it is not in line with Qiyas, he has to be a jurist before we accept it. So this is an idea that some mention. And... Um, it's problematic. I, I believe it's problematic, right? I'm not yeah. Hanafi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure, but this, the, yeah, this, this, this does go back to, you know, the hadith and Ahl Ra'i differences. Yeah. And um, it, 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 uh, they, they would extend this to anyone uh, uh, as long as their fundamentals are perceived as being violated. And so it's of course, not uh, just to add to that an issue, yeah, uh, Sam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue I have with it is, first of all, Abu Huraira was a jurist. Yeah, right? there is ample examples of him. He's an astute faqih. He's not someone who just narrated stuff and uh, didn't know how they related to each other. Yeah. There's many examples in his life. You know, Sahaba asking him to give fatwa, you know, asking for his opinion when they're presented with a question. Him reconciling traditions or trying to reconcile them. He. I mean, how do you define a jurist, right? So at that time, like, he was a jurist, right? It's kind yeah. of arbitrary to an extent. So that's one issue I have, right? 
And um, of course, this idea in and of itself should be challenged, Yanni, just from a logical perspective. And that's for another day, Yanni. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, this, this does seem, uh, yeah, interlinked with uh, a much broader debate, uh, which is this, that which needs to be treated, uh, on it, uh, you know, uh, you know, in and of itself, right? You know, is it okay to reject yeah. hadith with a sahih isnad simply because it goes against qiyas? That that debate needs to be settled before, uh, you know, discussing Abu, you know, uh, Abu Huraira's status or not. Pretty much. Um, so, and, but, but yeah, but it does appear to me that the, the bulk of the arguments that we're seeing in our, in our modern times uh, don't even, don't necessarily tend to focus on that because I, I don't see a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, our Hanafi brothers, at least not what I've yeah. come across, you know, going after Abu Huraira, uh, you know, going after Abu Huraira in that way. Uh, I'm seeing these modernistic attacks. I'm seeing yeah. people trying to discredit the entire Hadith sciences, uh, lodging these attacks. Um, and, you know, the, the, those tend to be the, the, the you know, the, the more prevalent, you know, uh, kinds of arguments that we're seeing yeah. against Abu uh, Huraira. And, and obviously, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, Ahli Hadith and Hanafi, Usuri um, debates, that, that, that has to definitely be uh, looked into at, at the foundational level first before looking into the specific manifestations and implications that come out of that broader de debate. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And uh, as I said earlier, like other issues, it's, it's not really about Abu Huraira per se. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's not even necessarily... Uh, doubting his reliability it's it's a debate on hermeneutics exactly you know? yeah. Yeah. and epistemic weights of qiyas yeah. versus ahad hadith and whatnot yeah that that requires a separate yeah 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 but unfortunately you know some people misuse it and some people misuse the hanafi madhab itself to peddle these kinds of ideas and so alhamdulillah i felt the need to, to point it out but that's that's pretty much it on abu Huraira. Right. um there were biases that existed among the early scholars. Uh, no one denies this, and we we pray that they all be rewarded for their, you know, ijtihad. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone made mistakes, and scholars debated, and uh, there's room for discussion and reformation, right? Alhamdulillah. Uh, so that's on that. Allah Taala Alam. So in summary, uh, without further ado, um, when it comes to Abu Huraira. There are a lot of observable factors that can explain and contextualize his rise and the rise of similar companions of the Prophet as prolific transmitters of hadith. And we went over some of those today. Barring the direct and indirect attestations to Abu Huraira's reliability by his own peers and students, his integrity and reliability can be demonstrated from his own traditions. And then last and not least, many of the perceived controversies about him stem from incomplete or flawed readings of his biography or his hadith. Wallahu ta'ala alam. And uh, that puts an end to this uh, presentation. Alhamdulillah. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. Well, you know, barakallahu fikum, akhi Abdullah, for that, you know, important and very informative uh, presentation. Um, you know, this is undoubtedly an extremely important topic, you know, as this is much bigger than a single companion. This is very intimately interlinked with the credibility of the science of hadith itself, which in turn with the credibility of the sources upon which our deen rests. So to cast doubt on the credibility of such a, um, you know, important and almost unanimous 
um, accepted narrator is tantamount to calling into question the science of hadith uh, itself. So, you know, you educated us about Abu Huraira and you mentioned uh, some of his virtues that may not be known to most Muslims. And I also appreciate how you tackled head on the most prevalent and relevant misconceptions surrounding Abu Huraira. And I also greatly appreciate that you've come here today, you know, with having conducted, um, you know, extensive primary research on this matter. And you didn't just simply, you know, go online and read a bunch of articles about Abu Huraira and just, you know, piece them together. So um, I greatly appreciate the efforts that you put into this. May Allah reward you and, you know, well done. And once again, thank you for this very useful and uh, educational presentation. Um, before we wrap up, uh, I was hoping I could ask you a couple questions. Um, you know, are there some generic, you know, beneficial learnings that you'd like the listeners to take away from your presentation? You know, you know, beyond the information that that they have been provided about Abu Huraira, are there some general, you know, benefits that you hope that maybe our listeners could derive? From this entire presentation, sure. Um, there, there are a lot of potential benefits. You know, when we talk about someone like Abu Huraira, you know, it's not common that you find someone you can talk about for like three hours straight or something, mm. right? I can't do that about a lot of people in my life. But uh, with Abu Huraira and you know similar people, there's a lot. There's always a lot to say. Um, here's the thing: I think someone who views this presentation should not even perceive it as the tip of the iceberg, right? This this is not the tip of the iceberg. This is like a droplet on the tip of the iceberg, right? It's this, or a snowflake on the tip of the iceberg. So what would the tip of the iceberg look like, right? If someone's interested. The tip of the iceberg, if you want to be thorough, is for you to read every single hadith of Abu Huraira and to exhaustively study his life from biographical and primary sources. With that, you'd have the tip of the iceberg, just a tip. So what's the submerged part of the iceberg, which is like the majority? That would be to actually master the sunnah. You know, when you you essentially do what people like Al-Bukhari, Imam Ahmad, Muslim, Tirmidhi, what did they do? They studied prophetic traditions of, of the Sahaba. They not only studied the prophetic traditions, they studied the, the opinions of the Sahaba, the opinions of the Tabi'in. They understood the context from where these ahadith were coming from. They studied the regional differences in hadith, right? They, they compiled the different hadiths of different regions. Um, they were familiar with the way the Prophet uh, spoke. They were familiar with the different patterns observed in the different Sahaba. And that allowed them, you know, to properly appreciate these things, uh, you know, and, and appreciate Abu Huraira and others, right? So if someone wants the tip of the iceberg, read 640, at least, at least 649 authentic prophetic traditions. And then you have to exhaustively study Abu Hurairah's biography from the biographical sources and the primary sources and be familiar with his sayings. Then you'll have the tip of the iceberg. Anything before that, if you make like any major changes like in your beliefs before that on Abu Hurairah, you are in one way or another either being deluded or you're blindly following someone without knowing it. You're being tricked. You are being confused with incomplete or limited information 
that is being withheld from you. And these sources are available. You know, no one's barring you from studying. Alhamdulillah, the books of hadith are not only accessible online, but a lot of them are translated. Um, so we have nothing to hide. Rather, I, I truly think that if you want to uh, yeah, solve the problem on Abu Hurairah, it's just to get people familiar with his life. It's that simple. His life on his ahadith. It, 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 the problem addresses itself. You know, it will self-resolve on its own in a lot of people's minds. It's just more familiar before they get involved in these uh, polemical discussions. Well, I mean, that's yeah. what I have to say. You know, for that. I mean, it is very clear that a lot of these modernist critics, uh, modern critics uh, of Abu Huraira, uh, uh, forget having submerged, you know, uh, into, the, into the iceberg. I mean, they barely even touched the tip, right? They have not done their due diligence. They are people who have clearly stepped out of their lane. They are not, uh, I, I forget being mujtahids in the field. Of, of hadith sciences. Uh, I don't think that they could even be considered, uh, you know, junior scholars in this field. And so to make these sorts of radical claims and mistakes, uh, you know, these are, these are clear cut errors uh, that they're propelling. And so it's a, you know, a general, a beneficial general reminder to also remember to that first we know our place and to, you know, take our Dean from recognized, accomplished, you know, major scholars. And, uh, and it's just, you know, advice that applies to any discipline. Um, lastly, you know, before we end, you know, would, would you have um, any specific advice to the lady who may not necessarily be in a, a position to, to do what you just mentioned, which is, you know, uh, because not all of us have the time to you know, not all of us are going to become scholars or, or specialists in, in the Islamic disciplines. And obviously with, you know, um, living in the technological era, being on the internet, these these doubts are spreading and disseminating uh, like wildfire. Um, what would be your advice to um, laymen who come across these sorts of arguments and okay. feel threatened and like, oh man, like what's this? argument saying what's this Khalid Abu Fadl saying what's this person saying I never knew this about Abu Huraira like what would you like to say to some of these people and what would you advise them to do at such a stage if you know uh, coming across these sorts of arguments well that's uh, that's a big question you know it's it's yeah. a very important topic and it's one that uh, you know bothers me regularly when I see the you know, the repercussions, I used to get approached all the time by people, you know, with concerns and insecurities and doubts. I have, I have two advices I would give. They're kind of unrelated, but they're, they stem from that uh, question. If you have not delved into these discussions, these polemical debates, consider yourself lucky. Don't. You know, it's not that we have something to hide, Right. But someone who still hasn't learned how to do algebra has no business debating, you know, um, uh, quantum mechanics, right? If you can't, like, do basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, if you jump into, uh, uh, you know, quantum mechanics, you're going to get lost. You're going to get confused. You're going to think it's nonsense. It's not making sense. Uh, nothing's adding together. You don't understand anything, right? So... If you have not delved into these discussions, consider yourself lucky. And if you want to, you should learn. 
But with that being said, that's not a good intention to pursue knowledge per se, right? Um, but nonetheless, if you are very curious, you it would be a disservice to yourself to jump in the middle of the fire, you know, without any protection equipment, without any background, you know. And, and there's a lot of narcissism, unfortunately, in people who do these things, by the way. Um, they think that they have uh, what it takes to debate someone. I've seen idiots debate yeah, all the time, and they get Sunnis, they have the right position, right beliefs, but they get, you know, the floor gets mopped with them. Why? Because you don't know anything. Have you read a whole hadith book? Like people who debate hadith, they've never read a single hadith. You know, they can't tell the difference between a fabricated hadith and mudu'at and Sahih Bukhari. Like they they couldn't tell the difference. It's presented to them. So like, you know, don't humiliate yourself like that, and don't uh, don't do a disservice to yourself. You know, knowledge is you know it gets us closer to Allah, and when it starts becoming a you know, it means a debate or, or something just out of uh, intellectual curiosity. It, it loses the barakah, right? But there's also something else I wanted to share, you know, in this context, specifically related to Abu Huraira, right? Because, you know, your question is is, is very general, and unfortunately, it's it's describing a an issue that's endemic to social media as a whole, right? And I don't necessarily know what the solution is, you know, for something like this, because I've advised people, but... Some people are just, uh, they waste their time with this stuff. But with respect to Abu Huraira, I, I would give people advice. Um, there's something a lot of Muslims overlook, right? Uh, Muslims, uh, Shias, heretics, uh, what have you. The rights of a Muslim on a Muslim, right? They apply to historical figures as well. Mm -hmm. Right, like I can't slander you. I can't slander my mom. I can't slander my friend or my neighbor or my teacher. You can't go around making stuff about a Muslim. On the day of judgment, they're going to confront you, right? And they're, Allah is going to give them their rights from you. The rights of a Muslim upon a Muslim apply just as much, if not more, to a historical figure like Abu Huraira, right? Or Umar bin Khattab or Abu Bakr. Why? Because not only are these people Muslims, they are from the best of Muslims, right? And an attack on their character not only is an attack on their character, it's an attack on, you know, entire, you know, legacies from the Prophet and hadiths and so many issues in fiqh, right? So something that may seem like an intellectual pastime, you know, we're having a discussion on Abu Huraira, you know, over lunch. You know, you, you don't realize that uh, a man can, can say a word and he can dwell in the hellfire for 70 years, 70 years, you know, just for that word, you know, not paying much attention to it. So someone like Abu Huraira, ya akhi, I mean, if you believe in resurrection, he will approach you, whatever you say about him, he's going to approach you. Uh, not just Abu Huraira, anyone else. But uh, this bias that we have towards against the dead, we, we assume that, uh, yeah, we can say whatever we want, we can make fun of them. Wallahi doesn't apply. You're going to be confronted by these people. And they are the awliya of Allah. And uh, yani, that's not a position you would want to be in. Even if you're not sure. Why go through that? Yani, why put yourself in that position if you're uncertain? Why? Allah Ta'ala, yani, that's what I have to say on that. Barakallahu feekum. And uh, you know, for that person advice, and I, and I think this is a good way to uh, end the discussion. We... Uh, you know, pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have mercy on Abu Hurairah and to reward him greatly for his efforts in preserving, uh, you know, the the, the, the the prophetic sunnah for us, an integral part of the prophetic sunnah for us. 
and may Allah reward him, may Allah reward everyone uh, that is defending his honor uh, and uh, today against all these scathing and baseless attacks. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep us firm upon our religion. And Amen. with that, y'all part you, Akhi Abdullah, and our listeners with the Islamic readings of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.